0: Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brother Fish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin.
0: And welcome to the 121st episode of the Nauticast titled The Old Powers, an analysis of a Clash King's Tyrion 10, in which Tyrion meets the extremely, very extremely impactful, character? Simon Silvertongue. Hooray! No! And learns about Varus' supervillain origin story. I definitely
1: enjoy part of this chapter more than the other parts, but overall it was a it was a really enjoyable reading experience. This is one of those chapters I wasn't looking forward to as much as some of the big highlights of A Clash of Kings, but I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would.
0: I'm with you there. I think this chapter kind of snuck up on both of us in the same way that Brand's entire storyline from A Clash of Kings snuck up mm-hmm. on both of us as being the superior storyline in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. All of the Clash of Kings, at least. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the Seven Seas and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the Blade that Brings the Deep Ones, Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Archmaster June, healer of the lesser poxes, Ragged Michael, warden of the north, Nelson the hammer prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the other red woman and mistress of whispers, Lord Micah the quilled lion, ward of the west, Harold the golden tooth, master of the bane fort and the kraken's bane, Lord James the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jacob assistant. Do the Hand of the King, ladies of Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, War of East, the of Mistress of Old, Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli, Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir, Source Prince, Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud, Soyboy of Summerhall, Defender of Book and Sway, Dance with Dragons, Sir KW, Den, Elsie the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies and Gentle thems. Lord Quint, Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively, not so big as a spy for several unnamed Hyde lords and ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. over the way for Tiwau. A.A. A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Vanaris of House Kulgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Shummel the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, the Cadaver King of and Horror of Heron Hall. Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils Wherein Every Count Votes, Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by Voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin and Ward of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles, Tyrell of High Garden, Lord Paramount the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War in the South, and the heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn. Thank you to all of our small counselors very much.
1: Thank you, counselors. As always,
0: our spoiler warning: as we see on all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is, the five novels, three, du- three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windswept sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Our question this week comes from Sir Eric Y, a sworn sword patron, who asks, "Hey guys, right after the bells aired, I had a thought of how we might see it in the books." I keep coming back to John Connington watching it happen with the bells driving him mad. It would be a perfect downfall for an aspiring Tywin. Good or bad theory. (laughs) And that's definitely interesting. I had similar thoughts when the the bells first aired Season 8, Episode 5 of Game of Thrones because the, the, the trigger of bells ringing is closely associated with the character John Connington introduced and becomes a POV in A Dance with Dragons. He associates the sound of bells with his defeat at the Battle of the Bells during Robert's Rebellion and, you know, associates that sound with, oh, I'm going to gain a victory for, for young Griff to, to take back that defeat and avenge myself and make it up to, to the ghost of my dear departed Rhaegar. And uh, so some people have suggested that maybe that's actually going to have some play with John Connington's fate in the book. So what do you think about that, Jeff?
0: I thought you made a really strong case for that. when We were doing the episode on the bells itself because I think there is a lot of bells that are going on in, in John Crichton's chapters. Something to stop the ringing of the bells. As he talks about uh, and to, of course, avenge Rhaegar and avenge Rhaegar's uh, and uh, through Rhaegar's son. Um, the the interesting question is whether John Crichton will still be around by the time we get to King's Landing and what befalls King's Landing because this is uh w- there there is a a, a time. Limit on how much time that John Cunnington has left because there are, are very few, um, very few people that actually survive grayscale after adulthood. In fact, I think the, the survival rate is zero percent unless you get it as a child. The and then that a lot of that is motivating what John Cunnington is doing in a Dance with Dragons and in the Into the Winds of Winter because he realizes that he's on such a a, a short amount of time that he has left. So that's why he's taking all these shortcuts and becoming more like Time of Lannister and doing all of these, saying that he wants to do all these things because if he doesn't do them, he's going to be dead before he can seat young Grift onto the Iron Throne. The question, again, I have is whether there's enough time for John Connington to actually do all of that and also sack King's Landing. And also, too, we also have to remember that part of the House of the Undying Prophecy has the Mummer's Dragon being cheered by throngs of small folk, most likely in King's Landing. Would the small folk be cheering the guy whose commander just murdered thousands of people in the streets of King's Landing? They sure didn't cheer for Tywin Lannister when he went through the town back at the end of Robert's Rebellion. Uh, They not really cheering for their own slaughter seemingly and then for the most part so I think this is a really interesting theory and I really liked I think you could probably put it you probably put it really well in that episode we talked about in the bells back a year and some change ago now why don't you explain the full theory as, as you see it
1: well, I don't, you know, as, as it just came to mind definitely strongly in the moment. I think, you, I mean, you make really good rejoinders to it at the timeline, if you really f- start thinking about it in terms of all these characters at King's Landing, John Connington doesn't seem likely to be our climactic POV for a lot of things in King's Landing. If any of Team Aegon is around to to watch this happen, we already have Ariane as a POV with her own ambitions, and she doesn't, you know, have the ticking clock of a fatal disease, <laughs> so she might last a little longer. But it, it, you know, it, it, and people have pointed out. I think I think you might have pointed this out. but people have pointed this out that Danny also has like you know the bells from Drogo and the tradition True. of bells tinkling for victory, and that could be an interesting resonance with her in King's Landing. So that's possible too. And you know, maybe this will be a, a, an event scene from multiple POVs with multiple reactions. Maybe Jon Con flips out while Danny comes to threaten Young Griff, and they have their own you know reactions, and we could see it unfold in multiple POVs, like something like the Battle of Blackwater or the Battle of Fire and Marine. But uh, you know, it's it's also entirely possible that it's just too easy to seize on that kind of resonance in the wake of the show and start kind of mining over it for stuff sure. like a feasting crow because it's you know <laughs> some some stuff just just you know connects by happenstance or because there's just a lot of elements you know common in play among all these characters so it's it's, it's easy to blow that kind of thing out of proportion and I think yeah John Con if anything is going to be too, is going to be fatally hasty but I could even see a case where like you know, bells go off for him and he does a sack of King's Landing when they arrive or tries to and then it gets followed up with Danny doing something worse later on in the story. That's also possible.
0: I can see all of those possibilities definitely uh, kicking off for King's Landing because that, that city is just like Tommen and Marcel. It's it's a doomed, mm-hmm. it's not an angel of a city, but it's definitely doomed just like those two little True. kids are doomed. Absolutely.
1: So uh, thank you so much, uh, Sir Eric, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we have to answer here on the Not podcast. You can go ahead on over to uh, patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F where you can uh, sign up to be a sworn sort of higher-level patron. And then you can also access show notes and uh, bonus patron-only episodes, like our ongoing 87-part series on The Forsaken, Aaron <laughs> uh release chapter from The Winds of Winter. No, actually, uh, the third part of that is going to be out uh, later this week if you're listening on the, the, the livecast, if you're listening on the release date. It's already out for all $5 and above patrons.
0: Absolutely. And... We just also want to announce for you folks as well for our, our patrons. If you guys are watching this, say you will find this out when you actually listen to the episode. This will now be part three of five totals on the on the Forsaken. As you know, someone had said that we we're kind of like playing to type very much and like expanding the series out. It just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. But we felt it was a good opportunity. We had a good uh, <laughs> breaking point for uh, for the Forsaken. And also allows us to kind of like engage with that part of the chapter, which my kid. Uh, A little underloved compared to all of the epic metal shit which is going on throughout the other portions of the chapter. So we hope you folks are enjoying our analyses of the Forsaken. And this one is going to be a real hoot, I guess. Not for Aaron, but for us it was, for sure.
1: I personally find that chapter inexhaustible so I can just keep going through it forever. So yeah, I've been enjoying getting as granular as possible with you, sir. So Mm -hmm. uh, two more parts to
0: come in August and September. Two, two, two. Two more parts, absolutely. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion Lannister, he had been at the end of a tail end of a very minor civil disturbance which had erupted all over King's Landing and burned half the city to the ground, as well as killed several important people in King's Landing to include the High Septon, Sir Aaron Santigar, and several others. Let's find out how the Lannisters recover, in quotation marks, in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 10. The Queen intends to send Prince Tommen away. They knelt alone in the hushed dimness of the steps, surrounded by shadows and flickering candles. But even so, Lancel kept his voice low. Lord Giles will take him to Rosby and conceal him there in the guise of a page. They plan to darken his hair and tell everyone that he is the son of a hedge knight. Is it the mob she fears? Or me? Tyrion asks. Both, said Lancel. Thus begins the most thrilling subplot in Clash of Kings, how Tom and Baratheon gets to Rosby, the suspense, the drama, what's going to happen? He's going to get to Rosby. Tyrion hadn't known about this plot from Varys, and he wonders if Varys was playing him false. He thanks Lancel for the information, and then Lancel turns around and asks if Tyrion will give him what he wants. And what does Lancel want? Why, he wants his own command in the upcoming battle. Tyrion thinks this is an excellent way for Lancel to die, and dismisses Lancel, saying he'll think about it. Tyrion lingered after his cousin and slipped away. At the warrior's altar, he used one candle to light another. Watch over my brother, you bloody bastard. He's one of yours. He lit a second candle to the stranger for himself. See, guys, Tyrion is good. Good. We'll see that. He summons Bronn to his chambers later in the night and gives him a letter to give to Jocelyn Bywater to tell him to scout the Rose Road for Stannis. But hey, wait, Stannis would come up the King's Road, Bronn points out. Exactly. Disregard the written instruction. Instead, Tyrion wants Bronn to tell Jassen to go north and ambush Lord Giles along the Rosby Road. Take Tommen into custody. To be brought back? No. He can keep going on to Rosby, but once everyone gets there, the Rosby garrison must be expelled and replaced by gold cloaks, and Tyrion will reward Jassen with the lordship if he accomplishes this task. Lord Bronn would sound better. I could grab the boy for you just as well. I'll dandle him on my knee and sing him nursery songs if there's a lordship in him. I need you here," said Tyrion. "I don't trust you with my nephew. Should any ill befall Joffrey, the last your claim claims to the Iron Throne would rest on Tommen's young shoulders. Sir Jacelyn's gold cloaks would defend the boy. Bron still sorts more apt to sell him to his enemies. Bron asks what Jacelyn should do with the old lord, and Tyrion says, "Fucking whatever. Just don't kill him." Also, there should be a Kingsguard. There should be a Guard involved in this operation. Bron is unconcerned, thinking that Sander Clegane was the only white cloak worth a damn, and he'd stay by Joffrey's side instead of going with Tommen. If it comes to killing, tell Sir Jason I won't have it done in front of Tommen. Tyrion donned a heavy cloak of dark brown wool. My nephew is tender-hearted. Are you certain he's a Lannister? I am certain of nothing but winter and battle, he said. Come, I'm riding with you part of the way. Bronn asked, if they're going to Shatayas, and they... R. They move through dark, mostly empty alleys, mostly empty because the curfew he imposed had been extended by the small council. As they bride, Tyrion feels impatient, turns quickly around to see if anyone's following, and then throws caution to the wind and races down the streets on his horse, racing for love? Love, yeah. At the manse, he hears music, and one of the Ebeneez waves him in. Tyrion asks who's making the music, and the Ebeneez bro says, it's just some fat singer. Tyrion had never been fond of singers, and he liked this one even less than the run of breeds sight unseen. When he pushed open the door, the man broke off. "'My lord, hand!' He, extended, he knelt, balding and kettlebellied, murmuring, "'An honor! An honor!' "'My lord!' She smiled at the sight of him. He liked that smile. The quick, unthinking way it came to her pretty face. The girl wore her purple silk, belted with a cloth of silver sash. The colors favored her dark hair and the smooth cream of her skin." Sweetling, he called her. And who was this? The singer raises his hands. I am called Simon Silvertongue, my lord. A player, a singer, a tall, a tale teller. And a great fool, Tyrion finished. What did you call me when I entered? Big mistake, my man. Simon blubbers for a bit before Tyrion tells him that he should have said nothing and pretended not to recognize him. But now that Simon knows who Tyrion is, his habits, and also about Shay, what's Tyrion to do with him? The man swears he'll tell no one and Tyrion agrees before telling him goodnight. Good night. Tyrion takes Shay up the stairs and she teases him about putting the fear of God into Simon and she then tells Tyrion that she likes his singing and please, please don't hurt him. Tyrion agrees, going for some boob, so long as Simon stays close and doesn't spread tales. Tyrion covered her mouth with his own. He'd had talk enough. He needed the sweet simplicity of the pleasures he found between Shay's thighs. Here, at least, he was welcome. Wanted. Afterward, he eased his arm out from under her head, slipped on his tunic, and went down to the garden. A half-moon silvered the leaves of the fruit trees and shone on the surface of the stone bathing pond. Tyrion seated himself beside the water. Somewhere off to his right, a cricket was chirping. A curiously homey sound. It is peaceful here, he thought. But for how long? But then Tyrion smells something bad. He turns and finds Shay at the door with a begging brother behind her. Shea announces that it's Varas, and the begging brother blinks at her. Meanwhile, Tyrion laughs and asks how Shay knew when he didn't. She knew because he was only dressed different, and even though he smelled and walked differently, sex workers always knew or else they would turn up dead in some alley. Tyrion asks if she could bring them wine, and she leaves. When she's gone, Varys reports that there's bad news to report. Sir Courtney Penrose is dead. Storms end his opening gate to Stannis Baratheon. Dismay drove all of the thoughts from Tyrion's mind. When Shay returned with the wine, he took one sip and flung the cup away to explode against the side of the house. She raised a hand to shield herself from the shards as the wine ran down the stones in long fingers, black in the moonlight. Damn him, Tyrion said. Varas asked whether Tyrion would like to damn Courtney or Stannis, and he replies, both. But how did this happen? Varas asks if they can speak privately without Shae, but she's not scared. Regardless, Tyrion is going to speak with Varas alone. He asks that Varas wait for him in the stables. He will ride back to the Red Keep with the eunuch. When Varas leaves, Tyrion sits down with Shay and tells her that she's not safe here. Sure, she has sellswords who like getting paid, but they ain't going to die for Tyrion's money. Besides, the riot had claimed a house much like the one Shay is staying in, and the mob had killed the High Septon, raped Lawless Stokework at the Lolly Stokeworth and Bash Sir Aaron Santigar's head in and they would do similar with Tyrion's lady if they found her the hand's horror, you mean she looked at him with those big bold eyes of hers though I would be your lady my lord I'd dress in all the most beautiful things you gave me in satin and samnite the cloth of gold and I'd wear your jewels and hold your hand and sit by you at feasts I could give you sons I, I know I could and I vow I'd never shame you my love for you shames me enough a sweet dream Shay now put it aside I beg you it can never be because of the queen? I'm not afraid of her either. I am. Shay says, uh, why not, uh, kill the queen? Tyrion doesn't love Cersei anyways. Tyrion says, yeah, nice idea, but kinsling is very, very bad, and Jaime and Tywin hold Cersei dear. Fact check, uh, anyways, Tyrion doesn't want to face Jaime with a sword. Shay starts to badger Tyrion says that Rob Stark can stand his breath and don't scare him, so why be scared of Jaime or Tywin? but Tyrion is actually scared of Robin Stannis. Regardless, his power rests with House Lannister. If he fights his father or brother, he'll have nothing to go on. Shay says that Tyrion will have her, and she starts kissing him. Tyrion starts sprouting a chubby, but he pushes her off him. He has a plan. I think I might be able to bring you into the the castle kitchens. Shay's face went still. The kitchens? Yes, if I act through Varas, no one will be the wiser. She goes, my lord, I'd poison you. Every man who's tasted my cooking has told me what a good whore I am. Tyrion says they have enough cooks, butchers, and bakers. Shea would pose as his scullion or a pot girl. Maybe that's how Tyrion would like to see her, Shay teases. Not really, subtext. You want to do some roleplay here, Tyrion? But no, he wants to keep Shay alive. Anyways, she can't wear silks and velvets in the kitchen. Has my lord grown tired of me? Shay reached a hand under his tunic and found his cock. In two quick strokes, she had it hard. "'He still wants me,' she laughed. "'Would you like to fuck your kitchen wench, my lord? You could dust me with flour and suck gravy off my titties if you—' "'Stop it!' The way she was acting reminded him of Dancy, who had tried so hard to win her wager. He yanked her hand away to keep her from further mischief. "'This is not the time for bed sports, Shay. Your life may be at stake.' Her grin was gone. "'If I have displeased, my lord, I only meant if only—' "'Could you just give me more cards?' Unfortunately, that's not to be. Tyrion can replace the gems and give her new gowns, and though the Red Keep isn't safe, it'll be safer than here. Hmm, about that. Shay's voice grows flat as she repeats incredulously that Tyrion wants her to be in the kitchens. Tyrion attempts to reassure her that it'll only be for a short while, but then Shay says that her father attempted to make her a kitchen wench, and she ran off. You told me you ran off because your father made you his whore, Tyrion reminded her. That too. I didn't like scouring his pots no more than I liked his cock in me. She tossed her head why can't you keep me in your tower? Half the lords at court keep bed warmers. I was expressly forbidden to take you to court, Tyrion said. By your stupid father, T- Shae pouted. You're old enough to keep all the horse you want. won. Does he take you for a beardless boy? What could he do to you? Spank you? Tyrion slapped her. Not hard, but hard enough. Damn you, he said. Damn you. Never mock me. Not you. Oh boy. Tyrion is not actually good, guys. Shay doesn't speak for a moment, but then she begs Tyrion's pardon and says she didn't mean to be impudent. Tyrion didn't mean to slap Shay. He didn't. Hmm. Is he turning it to Cersei? No, Tywin, but we'll get to that. He says what they both did was ill done. Really? Both of you? And then Tyrion tells Shay the story of Taisha and why he's trying to keep her a secret. I won't repeat the full story here, save for one detail that gets added from A Game of Thrones Tyrion 6, because that is when Tyrion first told the story. Here, Tyrion thinks that when Tywin ordered Tyrion to go last, his cock betrayed him, and he raped Tysha. Tyrion asks that they not talk about the Mansor kitchens anymore, but Shea says that her hands will be raw and cracked from hot water and soap. Will Tyrion still want her hands on him? More than ever. Tyrion's not sure whether Shea believes him, but she states that she's his to command. Tyrion takes that as a positive sign and leaves her and leaves her. In the stables, he finds Varas, and they ride out in silence. He wonders why he told Shay the story of Tysha, and thinks that some things should never be spoken of. He wonders what he did, what he wanted from shay Forgiveness, maybe? Why did she look at him the way she did? Did she hate the thought of scouring pots that much? Or was it his confession? How could I tell her that, and still think she would love me? Part of him said, and another part of him mocked. Full of a dwarf. It's only the gold and the jewels the whore loves his elbow throbs, and Tyrion wonders about getting a potion for it, but he doesn't trust the maesters, especially after what they did to Pycelle. Finally, Tyrion tells Varys about bringing Shay into the castle. Varys says he'll play his role in the part, but there's some major hiccups in Tyrion's plan. Everyone will ask questions, and she'll have to lie about her origins and how she ended up in King's Landing, and she'd also be the fancy of bakers and other kitchen workers. They'd be feeling her up and trying to sleep with her and maybe even trying to wet her. I'd sooner have her fondled than stabbed, said Tyrion. Faris rode on, pa- on a few paces and said, It might be there is another way, my lord. As it happens, the maidservant who attends Lady Tanda's daughter has been filching her jewels. Were I to inform Lady Tanda, she would be forced to dismiss the girl at once, and the daughter would require a new maidservant. Tyrion thinks this is a decent idea, thinking about how Shay would wear good clothes and even a jewel or two. Besides, she'd probably be safe from Cersei's visits, as Cersei thought Lady Tanda quote tedious and hysterical, and Lollys a bovine liquid. Gee, it's if her condemnation of the Lannisters from last week was absolutely fucking warranted. Meanwhile, Lollys was timid and trusting and would accept Shay, and she'd be close by if Tyrion wanted to go to Bone Town. But Tyrion thinks that Shay entering the Tower of the Hand, wink wink, would draw suspicious eyes as the tower is watched. Well, Varys might just, might have a solution to this. A hidden door, maybe? A secret access? To my chambers? Tyrion was more annoyed than surprised. Why else would Baker the Cruel have ordered the deaths of all those builders who had worked on his castle except to preserve such secrets? Yes, I suppose it would be. Where would I find this door? In my solar? My bedchamber? My friend, you would not force me to reveal all my little secrets, would you? Henceforth, think of them as our little secrets, Farris. Tyrion glanced up at the eunuch in his smelly mummer's garb, assuming you are on my side. Can you doubt it? Why no, I trust you implicitly. A bitter laugh echoed off the shutter windows. I trust you like one of my own blood and truth. Now tell me how Sir Courtney Penrose died. Varys reports that Courtney threw himself from a tower. Tyrion immediately thinks this isn't true, but Varys replies that no one saw anyone go up into the chambers. Well, maybe someone hid in the room or maybe the guards were lying. Maybe the guards did it. So many possibilities. Varys says, yeah, okay, sure kid." Tyrion picks up on this and asks how it was done. For a long moment, Varas said nothing. The only sound was the stately clack of horseshoes on cobbles. Finally, the his throat. throat) My lord, do you believe in the old powers? Magic, you mean? Tyrion said impatiently. Blood spells, curses, shape-shifting, those sorts of things, he snorted. (laughs) Do you mean to suggest that Sir Courtney was magic to death? Sir Cordy had challenged Lord Stannis to single combat on the morning. He died. I ask you, is this the act of a man lost to despair? Then there is the matter of Lord Renly's mysterious and most fortuitous murder, even as his battle lines were forming up to sweep his brother from the field. The eunuch paused a moment. My lord, you once asked me how it was that I was cut. Tyrion remembers and thinks that Varys didn't want to talk about it. True enough back then, but maybe now's the time. I was an orphan boy, apprentice to a traveling folly. Our master owned a fat little cog and we sailed up and down the narrow sea performing in all of the free cities and from time to time in Old Town and King's Landing. One day at Mir, a certain man came to our folly. After the performance, he made an offer to me that my master found too tempting to refuse. I was a boy. I feared the man meant to use me as I had heard men use small boys. But in truth, the only part of me that he needed was my manhood. He gave me a potion that made me powerless to move or speak, yet did nothing to dull my senses." With a long, hooked blade, he sliced me, root and stem, chanting all the while. I watched him burn my manly parts on a brazier. The flames turned blue, and I heard a voice answer his call, though I did not understand the words they spoke. The mummers had sailed by the time he was done with me. Once I had served his purpose, the man had no further interest to me, so he put me out. When I asked him what I should do now, he answered that I supposed I should die. Despite him, I resolved to live. I begged. I stole. I sold what parts of my body still remained to me. Soon I was as good a thief as any in Mere, and when I was older, I learned that often the contents of a man's letters are more valuable than the contents of his purse. Yet I still dream of that night, my lord. Not of the sorcerer, nor his blade, nor even the way my manhood shriveled as it burned. I dream of the voice. The voice from the flames. Was it a god? A demon? Some conjurer's trick? I cannot tell you. And I know all the tricks. All I can say for a certainty is that he called it, and it answered. And since that day, I've hated magic and all those who practice it. If Lord Stannis is one such, I mean to see him dead. Hell of a story, Vares. Both men ride in sounds for a time. Then Tyrion says he's sorry. Vares sighs and says that Tyrion doesn't believe him. Maybe Vares was drugged and in pain. He was very obviously dreaming about the voice. I believe in steel swords, gold coins, and men's wits, said Tyrion. And I believe there once were dragons. I've seen their skulls, after all. Let us hope that is the worst thing you ever see, my lord, Varys replies. Tyrion agrees and thinks maybe Stannis hired an assassin to kill Courtney. A very skilled assassin, Varys replies. Maybe a faceless man, like the one Tyrion wanted to send up for Cersei when he was a kid? Varys ignores this and says that Storm's End has fallen and now Stannis is coming. Tyrion asked whether the Dornishmen might invade the marches. Nope. Anywhere from Tywin? No word. Though the Oakhart and Rowan sigils were north of the Mander. How about Littlefinger? Any word? Nothing. But Varys has heard that Randall Tarly, the snivelly penis, has murdered a bunch of Florence while Lord Caswell is shut up in his castle. Tyrion threw back his head and laughed. Varys reigned up nonplussed. My lord, don't you see the jest, Lord Varys? Tyrion waved a hand at the shuttered windows that all the sleeping city. Storms end has fallen, and Stannis is coming with fire and steel, and the gods alone know what dark powers, and the good folk don't have Jaime to protect them, nor Robert, nor Renly, nor Rhaegar, nor the precious knight of flowers. Only me, the one they hate. The dwarf, the evil counselor, the twisted little monkey demon. I'm all that stands between them and chaos. And that is A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 10. A month of Catlin, a month of Davos, and a near month of Tyrion. When this chapter gets going, as all Tyrion chapters do, I really, really like it. What do you think of this chapter, Emmett?
1: I think you did a great job performing it, sir. So applause to you, first of all. Well done, well done. Thank you. Tyrion 10 has a difficult job to do. Tyrion 9 paid off a lot of the tensions rising in the background of his earlier chapters in the book while also setting up the next wave of tensions that won't really pay off until a Feast for Crows with the Sparrow movement. Meanwhile, the true climax of this book, the Battle of Blackwater, is beginning to take shape, but the ramp up to it won't get directly into gear until Tyrion's next chapter. Tyrion 10 has to act as a bridge between these two major events in King's Landing, as well as checking in with the more personal character character dynamics that will by necessity be sidelined during the battle itself. As such, the chapter takes shape as a quiet breath before a storm. Dark rooms and dark words. An unexpectedly intimate spill of words from both Tyrion and Varys. It's not one of my favorite Tyrion chapters like Tyrion 9, but as you were saying, it builds to something powerful and memorable by the end.
0: Agreed. And the first half of this chapter deals with the... internal conspiracies and schemes and threats to King's Landing from the inside, and also to Tyrion too, while the latter half of this chapter deals extensively with the external threats to King's Landing and Tyrion. Stannis has taken Storm's End. Time's location is unknown. The Reachmen are moving, but to where and why? It's easy to kind of think that there is a clean narrative break between the halves of the chapter, but I I really don't think so. I think it's intentional on George's part. I think George does a really good job linking these narratives somewhat cleanly together, talking about how Tyrion's supposed help on the outside, Tywin and Jaime, would crush him if he harmed Cersei, a Cersei who is both his ostensible ally, but actually his enemy on the inside. Meanwhile, Tyrion's relationship... Tyrion's relationship with Shea is threatened by both the external forces of Stannis Baratheon, but they'd only be threatened if the sellswords Tyrion hired gave up her location, something Tyrion thinks they'd do if the city is breached. The internal, thus the internal and external threats to Tyrion loop into each other, and so it's fitting that this chapter starts with classy Cersei slapdash to get Tommen out of King's Landing, just not too, too far away.
1: As I said, there is an unexpected intimacy to this chapter after the widescreen action and rhetoric of Tyrion 9. It unfolds in a sept, in an isolated manse, between two people on a quiet road. It's a palpable change in tone. In part, of course, this is just to create a dynamic reading experience, plunging ups and downs to keep us refreshed and excited for what comes next. But it also reflects decisions being made by our characters. A curfew is being enforced. Tyrion is taking the intimate pleasures denied him in Tyrion Nine, and in this opening scene, the underhanded conspiracies of the elite unfold in whispers. It's just the two Lannister men, a chamber drama that could unfold on stage. Glimmering candles are our only light source, and they speak tersely and quickly. We didn't see much of Cersei's reaction to the riot, and that's what Lancel has come to tell us about. She intends on squirreling Tommen away to safety. Tyrion then reminds us of the multi-layered stakes of the situation, personal and political tensions combining. Is it the mob she fears, or me? Well, it's both. Tyrion won't threaten Tommen for another couple chapters, but it's clear that Cersei is responding to Marcella being sent to Dorne as a threat to her power. She'll never let Joffrey leave her side, but the spare Tommen has to get away while he can, lest the mob kill him or Tyrion use him to solidify his own power. And this isn't pure paranoia on Cersei's part. As Tyrion himself admits, sending Tommen away is a good idea, because it makes Stannis' job that much more difficult. Even if he takes King's Landing and executes Joffrey... Team Lannister will reorganize around King Tommen Baratheon, first of his name, instead. Rosby is one of the few non-Westerlands families to stick with the Lannisters, so they can probably be trusted. (laughs) Disguising Tommen also displays good sense. All Tyrion changes about this plan is taking charge of it himself, asserting his authority over Cersei's, the Hand over the Regent, the brother over the sister. There is definitely political logic to this move. Tommen is not only Tyrion's nephew, he's the heir to the Iron Throne, a valuable political resource. The very fact that Cersei is hiding Tommen away from Tyrion is what motivates Tyrion to take charge of Tommen, lest he lose influence and fall a step behind her. Before the riot occupied Tyrion's thoughts for a little while anyway, he was dwelling on how he and Cersei have dueling conspiracies going with the Kettleblacks. Cersei doesn't view Tyrion as a legitimate authority, there's not much pretense of trust, and they've taken every opportunity to cut each other down in this book. Tyrion has an incentive to act on his power at every turn, otherwise it just won't be functionally real vis-a-vis hers. So this is not Tyrion acting in an irrational or cruel fashion. However, simply by doing so, he ensures that the race to the bottom between the Lannister siblings continues. And Tyrion alone is not going to pay the price for that. Aliaia will as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think it's like at the midpoint in, in A Clash in a Clash Kings Tyrion nine, there was this kind of temporary political alliance between Cersei and Tyrion where Cersei tells the King's Guard, you will listen to my brother because he is the hand and you must listen to him because and I'm the region. And, and so there was actually a clear distinction of the different power structures that they had there. That temporary political alliance that the last Ship has made for about 15 minutes after the riot is effectively undone by what Tyrion does here. This is where the small plots of the story then get to snowball later on into full blown major storylines. Because here, after this point, Cersei will abduct Aliaya and then threaten Tyrion with her. And then Tyrion will say that if anything happens to Aliaya, he'll respond in like fashion. Beatings and rapes included. Against who? Against Tommen. Cersei promises to hurt Cersei someday down the road for what he does to Ali for what she does to Aliaya, and then he says famously, "And you'll know that the debt is paid." This then will then factor to Tyrion's trial in King's Landing when Osney Kettleblack testifies in the trial and repeats Tyrion's words about hurting Cersei and paying his debts back to the assembled trial jury. It's enjoyable how George does his setup and payoff through small plot points exploding to larger ones, and I think this is one of those ones, and as I was saying in the mini-episode, it's kind of an almost forgettable plot point, this subplot about Tommen going to Rosby, but it has major payoffs down the road in the narrative.
1: You have this the overall escalation in their relationship and the escalation always possible within each given act. Tyrion is happy to concede that violence may be the price for taking over Cersei's conspiracy and getting Tommen away from her men, insisting only that Tommen himself be kept unaware of it. Bronn's response is loaded. Are you sure the kid's a Lannister? That's quite a bold thing to say to a Lannister, that being a Lannister means loving violence. But it's not an insult. It's meant as a compliment, and Tyrion takes it as such. That's the point being made about how these two men think about violence. Tyrion wants to spare Tommen that. The innocent one, the tender-hearted child who might get out of this with his soul intact, unlike we broken men. But the family business demands otherwise. Tywin's precious golden hierarchy is enforced in blood, and all the power and paranoia ultimately turns inward. Tyrion cannot possibly imagine Cersei's response to this move is going to be positive, and it's not clear what his plan ever was when Tywin comes to Mm -hmm. town. Even as Tyrion takes steps to secure the Lannister regime against Stannis, the leaders of that regime, the members of the crime family, (laughs) turn on each other. How ironic that Stannis is not among the threats listed that motivate Cersei to send Tommen away. Tyrion is the one who brings that up. It's only internal threats, the people and brothers she despises. The Lannister Hive is honeycombed with mutual deceit and distrust, and so rots from the inside out, even after their glorious victory over Stannis at the Blackwater. These internal rivalries grow worse and worse, culminating in Tyrion killing Tywin. The fact that Lancel is informing on Cersei to Tyrion speaks to this toxic dynamic and Bronn trying to hustle his way into possession of Tommen just extends it outward. As Tyrion thinks, he does not trust Bronn to keep Tommen safe. Everyone is just trying to grab this tender-hearted, unaware little kid for their own political advantage. The very moves that keep their family safe ultimately tear their family apart. The Lannister family is infected with a terminal case of tragedy and cannot escape their cage. The one flickering moment of renewal is Tyrion lighting a candle to the warrior in honor of Jaime. Jaime, who is a structuring absence so far in this book, frequently discussed but unseen. Even then, though, we have the contrast of Lancel, Cersei's substitute Jaime, so eager to be a warrior, like the warrior, like the god, and die in battle. Tyrion's own candle, of course, is for the stranger, the outsider, the pariah, the messenger of death. This is how Tyrion has always been made to feel within his family and the wider world and is now beginning to
0: embrace it. And it's kind of interesting because this is like the one moment where Tyrion is acting slash kind of being religious I mean, obviously Tyrion has met with his spy, Lancel, and his Sept, and Martin is conducting some fun paralleling with what we discovered last week, with uh, rather two weeks ago, with Cersei, using religion in her visits to the great Sept of Baelor as cover for her cloak and dagger mission to meet up with the Kettleblack brothers. That's something that Tyrion is doing here with Lancel. Still, there's no crowd that Tyrion has to play act religi- re- religiosity for. There's only him alone with the gods after Lancel leaves, and he lights candles, to two of them at least, the warrior for Jaime and the stranger for him. And I kind of wonder, was that genuine religiosity for, for Tyrion? Was it ceremonial and performing the ritual from instinct? I, I tend to think it's more Tyrion growing a bit desperate here. And that's kind of a nice turn on Martin's part that shows how dire circumstances are getting for the Lannisters. That having Tyrion lighting candles to the gods is saying, without coming out and saying it, it's going to shit for us in this city.
1: Yeah, I think you know Tyrion's in the foxhole here, and he's suddenly starting to to try to pray. And even then, he has an adversarial relationship with the gods, thinking to the warrior, "Watch over Jamie, you bloody bastard." He's one of yours. <laughs> even then, it's not exactly contrite, is it? So that's yeah, that's that's perfect. That's uh, that's great characterization for Tyrion. So from there, he sets out the Shataius in order to visit Shay. We get some exposition about the state of play on the streets of King's Landing post riot. The small council has instituted a curfew in Tyrion's name, leaving the streets empty as they ride, as if the city has died. But in truth, that anger is just lying dormant. Varus says that people are cursing Tyrion's name all the more. Tyrion thinks they ought to be thanking him for reducing the amount of corpses per day. Tyrion is not necessarily wrong on the facts of that, (laughs) but he is once more failing to consider perspectives and situations other than his own, limiting his ability to do justice." He has not dealt with the causes of the riot, both the material and symbolic disenfranchisement of the people, the sources of their suffering. What led to that pile of bodies in the first place? As long as Tyrion avoids the answer to that question, his peace is skin deep, ready to fall apart with a nudge."
0: Factor in also that Tyrion considers himself to exception to the rule and the anger that the smallfolk feel about him is justified. The curfew, in my opinion, reads as kind of a dust of dawn after the evening bells ring, as the chapter says. And there's no exceptions to the policy except for essential personnel. Is all this sounding familiar here? I kinda hate it. But Tyrion considers getting some essential work. It ain't. And so he's an exception to the rule. When the gold Clo- when the gold cloaks confront him and Braun, they quickly apologize and let them pass. But if we recall from last week, Jason Bywater's statement that the gold cloaks drink in the same bars, eat the same food, and live in the same neighborhoods as the people of King's Landing, this sets some really fucking bad optics for what Tyrion is doing here. Word is going to get around that Tyrion is flaunting his own quarantine. And this will mean either A, people won't take this lockdown seriously, a la several major politicians, but most famously, Bill de Blasio going to the New York City gym after closing all gyms in the city. Or B, everyone getting pissed off again about how the entire system seems like rules for thee, but not for me when it comes to the Lannisters. Of course, this is objectively what's occurring in the greater scheme of things. That is actually how the nobility and the aristocracy work in Westeros. This system is designed to reward the aristocracy and punish the small folk, but Tyrion shouldn't make it so obvious that he's flouting the law that he instituted and then extended and then had the council verify his extension. Maybe then the goddamn city wouldn't erupt into occasional bouts of rage or long-term periods of religious fanaticism.
1: You're right, but uh, Tyrion's political perspective is clouded at the moment by just how horny he is. His frustrated sex drive reaches its boiling point in this scene. Precisely because the streets have been made empty, it's hard for Tyrion to keep in mind the first rule of King's Landing politics. Someone is always watching you. He's sick of caution. He gives in and takes a risk. George writes it as a romantic moment, a sudden exception to the caustic and cynical tone of these Tyrion chapters. Tyrion is clattering down moonlit streets, flying to his love. In his head, he's become a hero out of the stories and songs, something always denied him. That's how he arrives at Shay's Mance. And I love how George manages this transition. Tyrion arrives like a character in the songs to hear singing from within. Suddenly the tone shifts again, back to cynicism, back to the withering nature of power. Tyrion wanted to be in charge of this moment. He wanted to be writing his own story as the protagonist. Now he finds someone else in charge of the narrative, literally singing the song. It's another man, keeping Shay company, his love, in the moonlight. Tyrion only believes in romance, the songs and stories, as long as he can be in control of the narrative, because as soon as he's not, you get Tysha's fate. His fear of losing what little love he has in his life leads Tyrion to grasp it too tightly, to prowl the borders of his happiness too violently, to the ruin of all concerned. As he says... He's never liked Singers, and this one least of all, sight unseen. It's a very meta moment, as if Tyrion wouldn't like George as much as George likes him. So Tyrion walks in, and the song breaks off. The romantic structure of narrative that briefly captured Tyrion has faded, and we are left with the bare dynamics of paranoid power. Shay is framed as pure poise and beauty, dressed in purple silk with a cloth of silver belt. Tyrion loves the quote, quick, unthinking way she smiles at him. Now why does he put it like that? Because if she's smiling quickly, without thinking, well then it might not be a performance. Feigned love, a show put on to get his money. That money, the core of the transactional relationship at work here, is represented by the silk and silver. So Tyrion wants, needs the smile to be real. He needs to believe that the romance is genuine, like something out of the songs. But the presence of the actual singer makes that fiction impossible to sustain. It forces Tyrion to look behind the curtain, recognize the constructed, performed nature of his relationship with Shay, and he can't take that. He tells Simon Silvertongue that Simon should have done a better job of playing along. You should have pretended not to recognize me as Tyrion Lannister, Hand of the King. After all, isn't that kind of why he keeps Shay around? To have a place where he can forget about his last name? About all the corruptions that go with power? As he says, he wants the sweet simplicity of sex. The sensation that here at last he is, as he puts it, welcome, wanted. That the world outside this manse can melt away. Shay smells clean to him, Tyrion thinks, as he buries his face between her breasts. Unlike this reeking sty of a city. She is his distraction, his dream world. Simon threatens that pocket universe with his presence. Tyrion threatens him to keep it safe. I wouldn't have believed you if you pretended not to know me, but you still should have tried. (laughs) And again, doesn't that also define his relationship with Shay? Her love is not genuine, and at some level Tyrion knows it, but she pretends very well. Her smile comes quickly to her face, as if unthinking. He paid her to do this. He paid her explicitly to set up this performance... And she does her job well. She's not doing this maliciously or cruelly to trap him. This is what they agreed on. Mm -hmm. By contrast, Simon's silver tongue turns to lead in the face of Tyrion's threat. Suddenly, the song doesn't work too well, reflecting how Tyrion's briefly romantic mindset has crashed on the iron realities of power at the sight of Simon. Simon, on the whole, is not a favorite character of mine. His dialogue with Tyrion is is very blunt and obvious. It's spelled out too clearly what's happening here, and same is true when they meet up again in The Storm of Swords. Regardless, Simon is structurally useful within Tyrion's story, pricking his pride. Tyrion threatens Simon's life to both Simon's face and then to Shay after they go upstairs. When Shay protests, Tyrion literally silences her with a kiss. His self-contained romantic story with her is no more free of the structures of power around them than his equally self-contained romantic story with Taisha turned out to be. After having sex, Tyrion goes downstairs to the yard, to the garden. Here is an oasis of the quiet natural world, life murmuring sleepily to itself all around him, so different from the dust and deprivation of the streets. This is an oasis, but it is a fragile one. Tyrion knows this peace cannot last, but he will do anything to make it last as long as he can, and bloodshed flows from that like an open wound.
0: Ah, uh, That's kind of said it better, and I agree about Simon Silvertongue Silver too, that the dynamic between him and Tyrion is a little bit too on the nose and lacking any subtlety. Of interest though, to me, is how we're seeing Tyrion's lack of concern for someone of a different class than him. Does this sound familiar? It probably should. He dismisses Simon Silvertongue to leave, meaning that he potentially damns Simon if a singer is caught by the gold cloaks trying to get home, right? Remember, the gold cloaks are out patrolling and killing anyone who is p- out in the dark past a certain time that they're at. Simon doesn't have the fierce sellsword brawn with him. He also doesn't bear the na- last name of Laster, the name that he's trying to forget when he's here with Shay. He's a singer, and recalling last week Tyrion's order about the lockdown, lockdown, any man found on the streets after the last peal of the Evenfall bell will be killed. That's what Tyrion said. Tyrion may be hoping that Simon meets up with the gold cloak on the way home, and the problem just kind of works its way out, as Office Space once said. Regardless, the dynamic of implied violence from Tyrion to Simon works to set the tone of every encounter between the two implied violence this occurs again in a storm of swords and that implied violence is set against Tyrion's sexual inadequacy or rather his feeling thereof you're right that he and you're right that Tyrion is seeking genuine love from shea he's always searching for the same looks he received from taisha before tywin found them But what happens if there's a sexual competitor in the mix? Notice how Tyrion zeroes in on Simon's physical defects as soon as he sees him balding and pot-bellied? No, he does not remind me of me. Stop looking at me. Tyrion picks apart Simon's physical inadequacies because he's projecting his own self-loathing yet again on someone else. Something external. It's a thought that makes him feel better to think that Shay wouldn't screw screw some fat balding bro, and even if he plays in a band. Does that seem kind of ju- kind of juvenile to you? Because it kind of seems that way mm-hmm. to me. It's a juvenile way of viewing sexuality, and it speaks to how broken Tyrion was by what happened to Tysha, and how his own development has been arrested by that event. In the past, he's only found love from sex workers, knowing that he's unable to actually be loved. But now, with Shay, he's made her his paramour, his new Tysha, and Simon threatens to steal her away. And if the Taisha subtext hasn't been emphasized enough before we actually get to Tyrion telling the story again, when Tyrion sees Shay after their sexing, she's wearing a gown that reminds him of a verse from Seasons of Our Love, the song that Taisha sings to him.
1: Mm, those are great points. Yeah, Tyrion is, is projecting his own fears about Shay not really wanting him all over Simon, and that just sends back to Tysha, because as Tyrion thinks of it, before Jamie tells him the th- truth, Tysha was pretending to, to love him. So that's always his, his fear hiding underneath It's just pretend. It's all for pretend. And yeah, the, the, the return of the reeking sty world of the city <laughs> to claim Tyrion away from his reverie is signaled by, what else? A bad smell, making it impossible for Tyrion to enjoy himself in the nice garden. Shae stands behind him, and Tyrion, as you're saying, directly compares her to a woman out of the songs, an ideal of humanity and femininity of the sort Simon likes to sing about. This is the life Tyrion wants to live, and she's standing next to a herald of death, Varus disguised as a begging brother, stinking of the lethal news he brings. The two halves of Tyrion's life, the two forces feeding on each other in the wider world. Yet these expressions of core elements are themselves masks to be worn by people who are inherently much more complicated. Like Tommen at Rosby, Varus comes in disguise to avoid giving away Shay. precisely the caution Tyrion abandoned, risking Shea's life in the process. Varus doesn't succumb to Eros, to the god of love like Tyrion, because he is Thanatos, the god of death, an important dynamic in Tyrion's story, those two forces. Varus is also pretending at poverty, cloaking himself in the image of humility and mortality by coming here thusly. It fools Tyrion, but it doesn't fool Shay. (laughs) This is probably my favorite Shay moment in the story because she's upending both our expectations and those of the characters, offering a distinct insight that couldn't have been offered by anyone else. Moreover, she's deepening the themes and issues at play in this chapter. These songs, these performances, these ruses we're talking about, she sees through them. She has to. In order to survive as a sex worker, Shea has to be able to see through both literal and figurative disguises. She has to be able to get a sense of her clients. If she doesn't, she might die for it, because the combination of financial motive, physical intimacy, and societal condemnation of her job leave her uniquely vulnerable. The same dynamic was at work when Stannis asked for Davos' advice, and only Davos' because a smuggler must be a fair judge of men. The consequences are simply more real for someone like Shay. She can't afford to be romantic like Tyrion, saying bugger it to the consequences in writing romantically to his love. Now, Shay, of course, has her own naive moments and blind spots, apart just because of how young she is. And the cruel irony of this moment on reread is that while Shay sees Varus clearly, she misreads Tyrion on a deeper level and dies for it. But in the moment, she disarms Varus himself, the spider suddenly looking like a clown. He overcompensated with this disguise. A pawn has seen through a player. Of course, this moment of levity quickly fades. As Tyrion recognizes before he even hears the news, there is no good reason for Varys to come visiting in the night. Tyrion jokes that Varys should come disguised in black feathers instead. And there is definitely something to the image of Varys as not only a raven, but a feasting crow. It reminds me of Gandalf, who often came disguised as a beggar and was associated with the bad news he came to (laughs) ward off. Characters who dislike him call him a stormcrow, which should send familiar to fans Mm -hmm. of A Song of Ice and Fire. Of course, Varus' relationship to power, especially the magical kind, is very different, as we'll get into at length later in the episode. On to his bad news. Courtney Penrose is dead. And Storm's End has surrendered to Stannis. It's the payoff to the mind-blowing ending of Davos 2, the confirmation that the second Shadow Baby did its job. We won't check in with Davos again until the Blackwater. For Tyrion, however, pure dismay drives all other thoughts from his mind. As in Tyrion 8 when they heard about Renly's death, his political mind skips past the question of who and how for the moment, and zeroes in on why Stannis is now free to march on the capital. When Shay arrives with the wine Tyrion requested to deal with Varus' bad news, Tyrion takes one drink and throws the flagon against the wall to deal with his fury. I understand his panic, of (laughs) course. The odds of his faction surviving the war just got a whole lot worse. As he thinks to himself, he was counting on Storm's End pinning Stannis in place until his father had time to deal with Robb Stark. And now it appears to Tyrion... That Tywin and his army will be trapped in the west, leaving Tyrion on his own to hold King's Landing against Stannis Baratheon.
0: That's mm. a good thing Stannis actually takes the city, right? No. Um, I think it's a, it's a good visual, though, to have Tyrion throwing the wine against the wall and letting the fingers come down black. It reminds us of what Davos saw under the walls of Storm's End and the black fingers coiling around Melisandre's thighs. There's also kind of a nice bit of literary foreshadowing for the Blackwater and the wine and blood similarities, that they're both the same color. Wine and blood are usually red, but here in the dark they both appear black. And the wine and blood will flow against the walls of King's Landing during the battle as it flowed outside of Storm's End and within the castle itself.
1: I love that connection of imagery. The Battle of Blackwater just kind of feels like a a wave of of corrupted blood at certain moments. A lot of the battles in the Song of Ice and Fire have that feeling. As... As re-readers, we know that it will take a precise domino effect to bring Tywin and his new allies, the Tyrells, to the city just in time to defeat Stannis. Tyrion, like the first time reader, has no such foresight, And while he does have some tricks in his back pocket to hold out against Stannis, he has reason to think that they are now doomed. Tyrion's violent anger in response to the situation, however, is still revealing about his character. George makes sure to note that he has put Shae in danger by reacting this way. She has to duck away from the glass shards lest she get cut. It's a microcosm of their relationship. She brought him the wine, fulfilling her part of the deal they worked out back in book one. Bringing me my drinks was part of that deal. In response, Tyrion puts her in danger to work out his urges. He has repeatedly put Shay in danger simply by bringing her with him to the capital and keeping her there as things get worse. She consents for financial reasons to move up the ladder, but as we see as this chapter goes on, she doesn't really fully understand the danger. Tyrion immediately regrets throwing away the wine, as he regrets slapping Shay later, but his instincts are what they are, inherited from his society and his family. He sends Vars to await him in the stables and turns to talk to Shay about that danger. It's not that Tyrion is unaware of it, but that he can't bear to face the truth. The truth is that the ultimate source of danger to Shay is not the mob, but Tyrion and his family. They are the powerful hemming in the powerless at every turn. Tyrion and Shay's conversation about how to keep her safe hinges on class, the yawning power gap between them as well as the fragility of her rise rising station relative to the people on the streets. She has sellswords and walls to keep her safe, as she says. The material signifiers of class power, luxuries unaffordable to most in the city. But as Tyrion says, the sellswords might decide there's more security to be had in robbing Shae than protecting her. Lannister power looks fragile. Jocelyn Bywater made no promise as to how long they can hold the city. Power resides where people believe it resides. What happens when they stop believing it resides with Tyrion and his family? What happens when those sellswords decide we can't necessarily count on our next check from Tyrion? They're not going to protect Shae at that point. As for those walls... They might serve to reassure Shay, as the Walls of the Red Keep reassured Tyrion in his previous chapter, but they will not stop a determined opponent. Tyrion tries to scare Shay with stories of what the mob did to his own party, as well as a goldsmith who had a manse just like hers, who died, as Tyrion puts it, for the crime of having a full larder. And it's so telling that this is how Tyrion thinks about it. Like many responses to modern American protests, he thinks about the structure of property as the state of nature, rather than a system created and maintained with violence. Where does the gold come from that this man smithed? Who buys it? The people who work in his employ, how much of the fruits of their labor do they actually get to see? Do they get a full larder? No, they do not. This is not to valorize violence on its own terms, nor to suggest that the goldsmith somehow suffered any less as he died because he was wealthy. Rather this is to say that these riots are an inevitable response to the abuses of power and wealth in King's Landing. To say otherwise is to suggest that the impoverished should have simply gone on accepting their lot until some better system emerged on its own peacefully at some vague, convenient, undetermined point in the future. That might seem preferable to the goldsmith, but it is not preferable to the people who killed him for his full larder. It is not the full larder itself that is a crime, but everything it represents, everything denied to the city's people. Like Lala Stokeworth, the goldsmith is an imperfect avatar for the people's mm. suffering, and so it is hard to frame this in isolation as a just act. But there, there is no clear available alternative that the rioters <laughs> are simply ignoring out of spite.
0: Right, and kind of like double down the point too about the, the violence inherited in the system. The Red Keep was created by blood and does not offer shape protection anyhow as the story is going to unfold. The source of the manse are untrustworthy as their loyalty was paid with by Tyrion's lannister gold. And this is so much different from the people who work in the Red Keep and work as Lannister retainers, right? No, wrong. And that's to say nothing about Tyrion and his willingness to use violence against Shae as we'll get to in a moment and as the story will get to and its inevitable conclusion at the end of A Storm of Swords.
1: Yep, that's, that's that's a great point. It's We're seeing within the Tyrion-Shae relationship, we're kind of seeing these larger forces play out on a smaller and more intimate scale. Tyrion can... Find it easier to admit these, these power dynamics when he's not personally at stake. He was right. able to concede the righteousness of the right as a response to the High Septon's conduct in particular. So it's clear, I think, that he's just using these stories as scare tactics to keep Shay in line, depending on him. Hmm. But Shay does not quite buy into this narrative, because unlike Tyrion, she was raised in a similarly impoverished state as these small folk. Shay knows that if Tyrion really wants to bring her into the Red Keep and keep her safe from the mob, all he'd have to do is do that openly Mm -hmm. that is why i'm in danger not because i belong to you but because i don't you have kept me in this perilous in-between state on purpose if this bubble universe we've we've created where we pretend we're at peace and i'm your lady isn't safe anymore then you need to pop the bubble Mm -hmm. Tyrion really ought to send shay away for her own safety but he doesn't want to lose her and she also doesn't want to lose his money if he's not going to do that the second best move is to bring her to court openly and keep her safe that way but he won't do that because Tywin forbade him to bring her to court. That's the real problem here. Not his scare tactics about the mob. Tyrion cannot rise against his family. Against Rob, against Stannis, against his opponents in the war as Joffrey's Hand of the King, Tyrion is powerful. Against his family, he has nothing. So he has to try and bring in into the kitchens secretly instead.
0: I think, um, and as I was, I was thinking, I was listening to this, this is a spot where I think Tyrion's is kind of acting Ned Stark-like and not taking full advantage of his office as uh, being the Hand of the King. Tywin is a long ways away fighting in the Riverlands. Tyrion is acting in Tywin's stead, yes, but he's not Tywin's agent insofar as he's not taking explicit direction from Tywin for every day-to-day move that he makes. Tywin told Tyrion to quote, not bring that whore to court. Okay, fine. Tyrion can bake Shae his official paramour or even his betrothed and eventually his wife. Just throwing that out there. Tyrion can proclaim it loudly, issue an official royal proclamation declaring Shae noble and granting her lands and titles. Now this is a very different circumstance than what happened with Taisha because here Tyrion has real tangible power as acting hand of the king. but Tyrion Tyrion refuses to wield it in in defiance of his father. And on my level, he knows that Tywin and Jaime hold the allegiance of the swords that support House Lannister. And when they return, Tyrion does not want to face them, especially if he's crossed them in some way. That's kind of Ned Stark-like insofar as when Robert was away, Ned was only willing to go so far in using his office without Robert's consent. It ended up being part of about 335 reasons why Ned Stark failed and was ultimately executed for his, his conduct at the end of the Game of Thrones. But for Tyrion, he's losing at the ability to craft a narrative out of fear, and I do sympathize with that. Tyrion was abused by his own father and scarred by what happened with Tysha, so he tries to keep Shay secret, promising that he'll get her a manse again once Stannis is defeated how? how How is this thing possibly going to work out for Tyrion, especially with Tywin actually coming back to King's Landing at some point down the road? Even if Tywin Lannister hadn't arrived at Blackwater, he was going to return and resume his tenure as Hand of the King. And what power would Tyrion have at that point? Not really much as far as I can see. How would Tyrion get away with putting Shae up in a manse after Tywin got back? The whole plan is shitty on Tyrion's part. And I think Shea. Understands that at an intrinsic level that it's really not going to work out for both of them.
1: Tyrion keeps kicking multiple cans down the road, and while Shay doesn't have all the information to necessarily put that together, I think she does sense it, especially as regards her and her safety. Shay's response to this plan is complicated. Again, I think she gets her most effective characterization here. Keep in mind that Shay must constantly juggle her real thoughts with the face she wears for Tyrion. Both come out in this scene, on and off, back and forth, as Shay tries to suss out how genuine Tyrion is being and whether this is really her best move. As she said earlier, a sex worker has to be able to see the man, not the garb, not the mask. She has to see past figurative disguises even as she wears them. At first, Shay's face goes still. This is her instinctive reaction as she tries to figure out whether this is something she wants and also figure out how to convey the sexy girlfriend persona to Tyrion while she solves the former problem. To do so, she giggles and tries to dodge the plan via self-deprecation, saying that she's a terrible cook compared to her skills at sex. Tyrion then tells her that this isn't really about her skills, she'd be entering the kitchens at the bottom of the social pyramid as a scullion, a pot girl in scratchy brown roughspun as she puts it. And Shae does not like this plan one bit. The whole reason she entered Tyrion's service specifically is to live in the lap of luxury relative to her old life. She has that with her manse as far as she's concerned. Yet she doesn't want to outright defy Tyrion if she doesn't have to, because said life in the lap of luxury depends on Tyrion approving of her enjoying her company, like Stannis and Davos, albeit in a different way. So instead, she filters her her objections to this plan through appeals to Tyrion's sexuality. Do you really want to see me in such rough clothing? Hint, hint. (laughs) Tyrion responds that he wants to see Shay alive, and she can't exactly scour pots and pans in rich, fancy clothing. On the one hand, he is demonstrating his good intentions, that his priority is keeping her safe. On the other, he is unthinkingly exposing the power gap at work. Shay is Tyrion's servant, one he treats like a lady. If she has to go to work in in the kitchens, they can't pretend she's not his servant anymore. Shay keeps her strategy going by framing that new, more severe class dynamic as a potential kink. Ooh, daddy, you might want me to play peasant girl? <laughs> Tyrion tells her to stop. Not because she's failing to arouse him, but precisely because she is succeeding. He doesn't want to have sex right now, and she's reminding him of Dancy, who wanted to win her wager. Why is that uncomfortable for Tyrion? Because thinking about Dancy makes him think about how Shay is arousing him for money. It's not genuine. Which is fine. I'm not criticizing Shay. She's mm-hmm. doing what she has to in order to survive, to keep her hustle going as long as possible, and this is the deal they worked out back in the Riverlands. Mm-hmm. Tyrion is the one who can't deal with the two faced nature of their relationship, and so he yanks her hand away from his crotch. Shay's grin fades, and she asks that if Tyrion is really concerned about her safety, if he's not just playing a game, can't she have more guards? Tyrion says that he doesn't care about the jewels, about the fine silk clothes. And here's the thing. She does. Mm -hmm. It's what she's here for. She doesn't love Tyrion, and we can presume his cock is not any more magical and special than Theon's. (laughs) She's in this for the money. If Tyrion takes away the trappings of wealth and luxury, why should she stick around? Why should she not find another client? As such, her voice is flat in response. You want me in the kitchen, scouring pots? "'That's why I ran away from my father.'" Tyrion notes that she had told him she ran away from her father because he had begun raping her. She says it was both, rape and forced labor. They go hand in hand. Economic exploitation and sexual exploitation always always reinforce one another, especially for women. As Varys tells Tyrion, Shay would be powerless to stop endless sexual harassment while working in the kitchens. And to be clear, rich women like Cersei also suffer rape. Lala Stokeworth just suffered a gang rape. But what George is getting at with Shay's backstory is that for many poor women, their only currency is their body. <laughs> Shay's father enslaved her, exploiting her labor in both the kitchen and the bedroom, like Craster. Tyrion is handsomely rewarding Shay for her services. She's an entrepreneur with a more economic agency, you could say, but he's still in charge here. Yet while Tyrion is in charge with Shay, in charge with the men under his command, he is not in charge with his family, which is why he must keep Shay's presence a secret. Shay points that out, and Tyrion loses his shit. He slaps her because he cannot stand being mocked, just like his father. He cannot stand being reminded of his liminal position, half in power and half not, hand of the king, yet also runt of the pack, hated by the mob and his family alike. When Shay mocks him, he hears behind her words the mockery of his father, his sister, an entire world that has rejected him for his stature. He lashes out, not at her exactly, but at the terror of recognition. Never mock me, not you. I keep you around in order to be the one person who never mocks me, because everyone else does, even though I'm in power now. I keep this oasis, the trees, the crickets, your available body, as an exception to the rule. A place, as he says, where I am welcome, wanted. How dare you take that exception away from me? I understand emotionally where Tyrion is coming from. He is not a pure giggling sadist like Joffrey. But this slap is still an unacceptable act of violence against a woman who has done nothing to Tyrion except fail to live up to his unrealistic image.
0: Right, and I think Tyrion believes that the money he has and the surname he bears, it kind of immunizes him from his real status towards Shay. Tyrion is a john, a wealthy one, yeah, but his status is as her patron, patron. and Tyrion recognizes this back in the Game of Thrones Tyrion 8 when he presents the bargain to Shay: I am a Lannister, gold I have in plenty, and you'll find me generous, but I'll want more from you than what you've got between your legs, though I'll want that too. You'll share my tent, bore my wine, laugh at my jests, rub the egg from my legs after a day's ride, and whether I keep you for a day or a year, for so long as we are together, you will take no other men into your bed." Shay accepts this back, and she says that, and sh- as far as we know, she's kept her side of the bargain. Tyrion hasn't. He is thinking internally of Shay as his quote, love. And it's clear in this chapter that Shay is treating Tyrion within the boundaries that he set, again, Tyrion set these specific boundaries on the relationship. She laughs his Jess, just back, and tries to be the sexy girlfriend. Here's something crucial too. I think Shay was honest with Tyrion about what she thought about him sniveling to his sister and father, because at most times, Tyrion would rather have honesty from Shay. Tyrion desires authenticity and genuine affection from Shay. Emotional intimacy, you can even call it. And that kind of intimacy is found, in my opinion, in honesty primarily. The problem is that Shay was being too honest. Or perhaps it's more true to say that Tyrion's subconscious feeling of how everyone views him is being vocalized by Shay. Last week it was Jocelyn Bywater giving Tyrion the cold, clean water of truth. But Tyrion couldn't strike Jocelyn for voicing truth despite Jaslyn being a man in Tyrion's direct employ. Does that sound familiar? Because Shay is also in Tyrion's direct employ, but she's a woman, smaller than the guy who lost his arm fighting in the Greyjoy Rebellion. Shay's vulnerability and status as a sex worker and woman allows Tyrion's hand to fly. And this gets at something about Tyrion worth bearing a repeat. Tyrion has a strong streak of violent Lannister misogyny running through him, It rears its head every now and then in the first two books, like in this instance in this chapter. It roars in storm, dance, and the winds of winter.
1: Very well put. And in the wake of its rearing its head here, silence reigns. That cricket from earlier chirps. It's the classic cricket joke that, you know, crickets take over in a silent, awkward moment, as well as a reminder that this peaceful oasis has now been spoiled. It wasn't the mob who spoiled it after all, nor was it Stannis. It was Tyrion. Shay apologizes for being impudent, as she says, but her voice is wooden. It is now clearly a performance. Tyrion cannot pretend that they are truly in love. Tyrion thinks to himself that he is turning into Cersei, and Cersei is a few steps further down this same stairway to hell. She has long since given up on love entirely. Tyrion says that this conversation was ill done on both of their parts. But how has Shay done wrong? She doesn't know what she was provoking. She doesn't know anything about Tyrion's backstory. She doesn't get the danger at work that he's talking about. And Tyrion seems to realize that all at once. Unlike in the show, Tyrion didn't reveal the Taisha story to Shay at the same time as Braun. And he does so now. As Tyrion thinks, these are words he never meant to speak, but here they come, like mummers tumbling from a hollow horse. Interesting Trojan horse reference there, and I, I was <laughs> curious and reread what the implication might be. <laughs> I think George is suggesting that for Tyrion, this confession is a Trojan horse for the destruction of his carefully defined relationship with Shay. He is breaking the rules, shattering the careful in between intimacy that makes this work. Shea has the job of pretending to be in love with him, and Tyrion has the job of pretending that he's not using that feigned love to fill the hole that Taisha left behind. But now Tyrion has gone too far, assumed too much of the power always lurking in the corners of their relationship, and so she stops feigning love. In order to win her back, Tyrion feels the need to be honest, to explain why he lost his temper and why he believes he just cannot defy Tywin on this count. The consequences of me defying my family will not be borne by me, a mere slap on the wrist from one noble to another, a spanking, as, as Shay describes it. No, the consequences will be borne by you. The powerless person caught in the middle, the whipping boy suffering so the powerful don't have to. I know this because it happened before, with another sex worker with whom I grew close enough to call love. It was all taken away. <laughs> of course, Tyrion leaves out a crucial part of the story, reserving it for his thoughts. Tywin did not only have his guards rape Tysha, he had Tyrion take part. And Tyrion could have refused, but his cock betrayed him, as he puts it. He had sex with Tysha one last time, lacking consent, lacking love, lacking the escape from a hateful world that had defined their relationship. Instead, it is put in service of that hateful world once more. Tyrion joined the rapists, his desire stronger than his fear, and so knuckled under to Tywin's worldview. Tywin believes that, th- that there could not have been any genuine love between his son and a lowborn woman. That threatens his entire worldview, so he must reinforce it violently. He has Tyrion take part in order to cement that worldview in Tyrion's head. Tyrion knows that he is not an exception to the rule. When push came to shove, he chose the side of the monsters in order to slake his lust. But he does not tell Shae that, because it gives away the truth. Not only can Tyrion not protect her from his family, he can't protect her from him. He will join in the violence. Tyrion holds that back because while he wants to impress the danger upon Shay, he still wants her to feign affection for him. Hmm. Does it work? Partially, (laughs) seemingly. On the surface, which is ultimately all Tyrion and the reader has access to because Shae is not a POV and she's generally pretty good at hiding what she's thinking. Shay's eyes have gone wide but Tyrion cannot tell what lies beyond them. He desperately wants to know the truth. He desperately wants intimacy and togetherness but he also furiously rejects that truth. She asks the question that you got to imagine is kind of increasingly relevant for her. Are you still going to want me around when my hands are red and cracked from washing pots all day long? The intimate dynamics of love and lust cannot be made separate from the power dynamics of society at large. Shey only looks so perfect to Tyrion, like a, moonlight, like a maid with moonlight glowing in her hair, because he has made it so that she doesn't have to work for anyone else. Will he still want her if she looks as poor as she is? If he can't pretend she's noble born like him? If we reveal power nakedly for what it is? Tyrion says he will love her more than ever because she will be beautiful on the inside. She will have been so brave. It's an attempt to reach out to her on a personal equal level, but as she says, she's his to command. <laughs> That's what it ultimately comes down to between them. Power. Tyrion has not solved it and can only leave. As he leaves, Tyrion is suddenly terrified by what he just did. The reservoir of intimacy he has cracked open and cannot now hide again. As Duran Martell says to Arian once, once you loose an arrow, a word like an arrow, you cannot call it back. <laughs> Some secrets a man should take to his grave, Tyrion thinks. But he couldn't bear Shay to hate him. Instead, he's left with ambiguity. Did I want her forgiveness? Did she give it to me? Can she redeem me for Taisha? Or did that story make me irredeemable in her eyes? I told her that story so that she could still love me after I hit her. But did that story make it impossible for her to love me by exposing my true face at last?
0: I mean, these are like the questions that Tyrion is just plagued with. And I think it's throughout his narrative is something that he's always wondering about, whether people are being genuine towards him, whether they're giving him the emotional response that he's looking for, or whether they're just play acting in front of him. And I think this is a spot where I, again, have to express my disappointment with how the show handled Tyrion's storyline. And by and large, most fans, including me, are pleased with what occurs with Tyrion in the early seasons of the show. But there are moments in the early seasons where Tyrion gets some airbrushing of his worst deeds. Like you were saying, they moved the timeline of Tyrion telling Shay about Taisha back to season one. And that meant that this scene where Tyrion slaps Shay is entirely absent in season two. Game of Thrones cut the sequence of events to get Shay from the Mance into the Red Keep, very condensed, and then with most of the plot with most of the plotting left on the cutting floor. Whether that's due to time constraints or narrative reasons is kind of beside the point. And the scene isn't in the show and the show suffers as a result. When I talk about the show airbrushing some of Tyrion's worst misdeeds out, it's not like I want to see Tyrion slapping Shay or later threatening to have Tommen raped. It's that these moments build towards major plot payoffs, but they also build towards major character and thematic payoffs for Tyrion down the road. In the show, Shay actually loved Tyrion back as is explicitly revealed in season four. The John to sex worker dynamic between Tyrion and Shay is absent, and so too the relationship is something that George talked about in 2015, which she said the Shay in the books is a manipulative, camp follower prostitute who doesn't give a shit about Tyrion any more than she would any other John, but she's very compliant, like any s- little. S- <laughs> I can't believe George says it. it's just a little teenage sex kitten feeding all his fantasies. She's really just in it for the money and the status. She's everything Lord Timon thought Tyrion's first wife was when she actually wasn't. So So there are all these layers of complexity going on here. They're the same character, but they're also very different characters. And I think that's going to lead to very different residences playing out in the TV show than in the books. Interestingly, interestingly, George says that he prefers the show version of Shay than the book version, and he catches a lot of that in the performance of Sibel uh from the show, who plays Shay, of course. So the voice of God on that one, but I disagree with George. How can I can say that in that Shay works at Tyrion's darkness and shows us what's beneath the surface of her japing, fun-loving dwarf.
1: I, I agree. I think I understand. I think you know Shay gets some more like standalone moments, less, less one-note moments in the show, but I think. How she's handled in scenes like this in the book works well in terms of how precisely Tyrion is, is, is being exposed, how his worldview is being taken apart, and how she's just trying to get along and doesn't really understand the the, the layers of, of messed up, toxic infighting that she's wandering mm-hmm. into with House Lannister. Where Tyrion comes down is that Shade does not love him, but loves his money, and he is a fool of a dwarf if he thinks otherwise. And this is the truth, at last, but Tyrion frames it in such a way that he cannot take any peace from it. Rather than thinking, oh, right, this is a transactional relationship from the get go, so I should stop projecting everything onto it, he cannot help but project his lost love with Taisha all over Shay. This is how I get that love back, that's what he thinks to himself. And that way leads to doom for so many reasons. Shay is not Taisha and can't be. The pretense of love between them is just that, a pretense. Tyrion's family will not leave this relationship alone, as he knows very well. As he leaves, Tyrion thinks that maybe he should see a maester for his elbow pain, but he doesn't trust maesters after Pycelle. It's that same corrosive lack of trust along power lines that infects his relationship with Shae, and in both cases, they're just left with pain.
0: Full of a dwarf, as Tyrion says to himself over and over again when he's regarding Shay and his relationship to Shay, But... It- Tyrion's relationship with Shay is only one aspect of this motley crew that Tyrion has assembled around himself. We have Bronn, who was introduced at the beginning of this chapter. We have Shay in the middle part of the chapter. And then we get to probably the most, the, people that, the thing that people remember about this chapter most, the backstory with Varys and the discussion that Varys and Tyrion have on the way back to the Red Keep.
1: Yes, indeed. This chapter comes down to Tyrion and Varys, two lifelong mummers trying their, trying to work their way to the truth, for once, about what's happening in Westeros. They start by talking about Shay. As Varus points out, Tyrion is being as naive as he, as he thought Shay was being earlier. You are not taking into account the nature of power, the endless performance required of us all. The odds of Shay being caught in a lie dramatically increase if Tyrion tries to smuggle her into the kitchens. She's good at acting for her clients one-on-one, but this is a different game. Varus also impresses upon Tyrion in lavish detail the likelihood that Shae would come into sexual contact, albeit unwanted, with other men. Varus is a eunuch, as this chapter is about to remind us at great length, and it's interesting how he dwells on Tyrion's potential sexual jealousy. Varus, I think, is testing Tyrion with these details to see if he can arouse Tyrion's rage, so to speak. He wants to see if Tyrion can really play this role. Tyrion passes that test by saying he'd rather she be fondled than stabbed. Again, even as Tyrion takes steps to try and ins- even as Tyrion takes steps to try and ensure uh, Shay's safety, he accidentally ends up exposing the rot inherent in their power dynamic. Whether she wants to tell all these lies and put up with this fondling is entirely immaterial to Tyrion. He's keeping her safe like a prized possession. Varys is uh, not exactly an empathetic man, <laughs> but his vision is less clouded on this count than Tyrion's, and so he comes up with a different plan. Let's get Lawless's maid fired and Shay hired in her place. Yay. This plan is indicative of both Varys's spy network and the power structures at play. Varys has a reservoir of intelligence from which to draw that outstrips Tyrion, let alone the common folk. He has something on everyone, strands of blackmail along his spiderweb that tremble at his lightest touch. We're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here. One wonders how high up you'd have to go to find someone Varus can't have replaced. After all, he had Jocelyn Bywater installed. Varus can certainly be confounded by other planners, just look at Ned's execution or be the victim of bad luck. But his network allows him to reshape other planners and their schemes at will when they need him, as they so often do. In this case, his little birds have made him aware of theft being committed by Lawless's maid, who no doubt thought she was alone in the room when taking those jewels. Varus sat on this information until he could find a use for it. If he never did, she'd probably have gotten away with it. It's so telling that no one has noticed yet, (laughs) because these people have so many jewels to begin with.
0: Right, and so I was thinking about this. At the beginning of this chapter, Tyrion wonders why Varys didn't tell Tyrion about this plot to get Tommen away to Rosby. And I I think it kind of makes sense when we have this kind of closing moment, not this closing moment, but this moment where Varys is sharing this distinct piece of information about Lollys' servant here. It seems to me that Varys not informing Tyrion about Cersei's plot to get Tommen out of King's Landing, it kind of speaks to a greater conspiracy that's potentially at work here, and that Varys is like, well... I think it's probably good in the long term to kind of have this in my back pocket of where Tommen actually is. so I could use that to kind of set these two Laster siblings apart because the greater Varys' conspiracy ultimately is to, of course, seat Young Grift onto the Iron Throne and also to have Westeros fall into a slow burn civil war which would consume the country and have Young Grift arrive at the precise exact moment where he can come and save the country all at the behest of this great um, stage direction that Varys has been giving to giving to Westeros. And I think this idea that Varys didn't know about Rosby and the plot of Rosby is likely not true. Var probably very much knew about it, but he wanted to keep it a secret from Tyrion because he has a greater conspiracy at work. And there are certain things he says and reveals and does not reveal, which does speak to more of his larger plot in the in the thick of things, as we're going to talk about towards the end of this this episode.
1: He's manipulating the nobles when you get to situations like the Lannisters and what to do with Tommen. But uh, it's, I think it's also interesting to see how he handles the, the small folk, like this, this servant yeah. of, of, of Lola Stokeworth's. As with the riot, Vars treats the wants and needs of the small folk as pawns in the game to be redirected at his will, never actually addressed. That's not to compare stealing jewelry to demanding bread, to be clear. One of these is clearly more urgent than the other. But at every turn, we are seeing a struggle over access to wealth, the great signifier of power. Shay wants to hold on to her jewels and gowns. Tyrion likes Varus' plan because it will allow her to do so, which life in the kitchens would not because you're not allowed to have those things down there would make you stand out. This other woman will lose her job, not because of her crime, not because she took the jewels, but because her spot was needed by a more well-connected woman. The Mm -hmm. crime is an excuse, and that is something to keep in mind when discussing crime in real life, because there's lots of crime that you know never gets reported, never gets acted upon, and it's always important to ask why. Already there was a cost mounting to Tyrion's need to keep Shay with him. Of course, this access to power has to be tempered with distance from power if the plan is to work, reflecting how Tyrion, Shay, and the relationship are all endangered by having to keep one foot in and one foot out of the tent. Shea would be closer to power, in the form of money and nice things as all this is made, but she would also be far away from power in terms of Cersei's attention, and that's very useful. Still, Tyrion is concerned that Cersei, always watching, like Varys, like Shay herself, will notice if Lawless's maid starts paying calls on him. Varys again offers the use of his intelligence network by bringing Shay into the Tower of the Hand via a secret tunnel that Tyrion is only finding out about now. (laughs) Tyrion is more annoyed than surprised by this. He's not ignorant of the nature of power, but he struggles, as we see in this chapter, to reconcile it with the goals of his personal life. Why else, as he thinks to himself, would Magor have everyone who worked on the castle executed if not to hide precisely such tunnels? The Red Keep is red with their blood. The very foundations of this place scream silently of the hideous abuses of power that also define life under the current regime. Varys uses the resulting secrecy of those tunnels as the foundation of his own power. The Targaryen regime has fallen, so they belong to him, the spider as the heir, just scuttling along these dust covered passages that they left behind. It's a metaphor for the secrets of the powerful, the lives and histories swept under the surface. Used here only for Tyrion's as sexual escapades. <laughs> Varus is willing to lend him his power for, for such a, a tawdry reason, but never part with it entirely. Tyrion wonders yet again if Varus is truly on his side, and then he realizes yet again that it doesn't matter. <laughs> he needs Varus to protect himself and his family from Stannis, and as this chapter is about to elaborate, Varus needs Tyrion for the same reason. Moreover... As Tyrion admits, it's not like he can trust his own family, the people he's supposed to be able to trust. So why would he be wounded by Varys's own untrustworthiness? He says this about, about Bronn in The Storm of Swords. He was always an insolent, black-hearted rogue, and that's what I liked about him. <laughs> Tyrion is so isolated from the rest of humanity and so accustomed to the taste of his own alienation that even as he longs for something more nourishing, more genuine, more real in this chapter he can't really conceive of it. He feels more alone than ever. His bitter laugh echoes off shuttered windows, a locked-down city and a lonely heart, both about to be under siege. And so the conversation turns to Varus's news, the growing storm clouds on the southern horizon. How is it that Courtney Penrose came to die? According to Varus's reports, he threw himself from a tower. This comes as a surprise to the reader, who otherwise is better informed than Varus about this. Because that's not how the first shadow killed Renly, it slit his throat. I think George changes this up so the deaths resonate differently. Renly's death felt like a sacrifice, a throat slit on an altar to relore. Courtney Penrose's death feels more mundane, but also symbolic of the fall, the classic fall, the fall from grace, the biblical fall. Courtney Penrose was not exactly a knight of summer, but he followed the same king they did, and his weathered ideals have now given way. Bran went through the most obvious and iconic and literal incarnation of the fall in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I think George might be calling back to that here. Bran was thrown from a tower and so was Courtney Penrose. The practical effect of killing Courtney this way is that unlike with Renly, the cover story can now be that Courtney killed himself out of despair at his situation. No one would ever have brought that story with Renly, given how optimistic and in charge and how how bright his fortune seemed. But interesting that this cover story doesn't really work either. Tyrion doesn't buy it for a second with Courtney Penrose that he killed himself, just as Courtney didn't buy the cover story with Renly. Team Stannis have these cover stories, they have this plausible deniability, but it never quite holds up. Tyrion offers practical rejoinders to this cover story. It must have been that the killer hid. It must have been that they climbed down a rope. Or hey, it was the guards themselves who killed him. That was, you know, part of the stories flying around around about Renly's death. Varys pretends to agree. No doubt you have the right of it, my lord. (laughs) Tyrion thinks that Varys is being smug. The superior spider flaunting his knowledge-like armor over everyone else.
0: Yeah, and and it struck me, too, because there's a couple of details that are brought into this conversation by Vars, specifically about how Sir Cody Penrose had challenged Stannis to single combat, and... Notice too, if you go back and listen, uh, listen back to some of our earlier episodes, about what Varys is doing while Stannis is on Dragonstone. We never get the sense that Varys had any real informers on Dragonstone itself. It seems like most of his informers were not on the on the castle, or were not, or had gone silent, as he says in one of Tyrion's earlier chapters, or at the end of A Game of Thrones. The thing is, is that now that Renly's soldiers and lords and knights have all joined up with Stannis Baratheon, suddenly the information starts flowing. We start learning about intimate details about what's going on in these parlays between Varis, rather between Sir Courtney and Stannis Baratheon. And I think the the implied motivation here, or rather the implied plot aspect that's left off page, is that the spies that were in Renly's camp have now joined onto Stannis' side and they are now informing about what's happening with Stannis and various aspects in some intimate detail. And you kind of wonder whether some of these, these lords might have, be, have a a financial stake in kind of informing on what Stannis is up to down in Storm's End.
1: I think that, that's that's a good point. It's, it's so hard to keep track of these, these shifting power ties with Forrest not only because he's a non-point-of-view character but because he's always putting on a front and always trying to seem more powerful than he actually is. But this, as it turns out, is the last hurrah of Varus's mask. He entered this chapter literally disguised, yet as it goes on, something like his true self wins out. He thinks something else happened at Storm's End, and it disquiets him. So he asks the question he has been dreading. Do you believe in magic? (laughs) As I've been saying ad nauseum, the overall structure of A Clash of Kings is that of political and magical expansions that intertwine and infect each other. That's how the book starts, Cressen staring down that red eye in the sky, trying and failing to reassure himself with his hard-earned secular wisdom. And that's how the book ends, Bran walking away from Winterfell with his third eye open, looking back to perceive its enduring strength in both worlds. In between, we see countless examples of this structure, this kind of this double helix at work. From Arya relying on a faceless man to navigate the Lannister occupation of Hall to the multiple sorcerous elements hovering around the edges of L.C. Mormont's military expedition beyond the Wall. And of course, we saw these two forces coming together at work at Storm's End. The Clash of Kings, the showdown between the Crown Stags, was resolved by something that Varys's political intelligence can't quite explain. Here, in King's Landing, at the heart of political power, in the wake of a thoroughly secular political phenomenon, the bread riots, politics must reckon with magic. As George said, he doesn't want to create a world in which magic makes political action moot. That seems lazy to him, and I agree. Magical power is filtered through political power. We saw that on the Dothraki Sea with Danny and Mary Mazdur. We're gonna see it again in the next book with Barak and Thoros. But the flip side of that, is that political power must face down the consequences of magical power. It cracks these schemers open and forces them to scramble and rethink things. Varus refers to magic as the old powers, Hmm. which resonates given how much time this story, and especially this part of the story, dedicates to examining the nature of power. Where does power come from? Well, if you go back far enough in the mists of time, the nature of power is the power of nature. Ice and fire, water and stone, faces in the trees, the gods. (laughs) The vanished slash vanishing world of magic of the elves longed for with such memorable, memorable ache in Lord of the Rings. A lot of fantasy written in Tolkien's Wake dwells on the cost of trying to bring that world back to overtake the new one, the world of men. Melisandre's shadow birth felt like the creation of something new, but also like the return of something ancient. And Varus is addressing that wheel of time. Tyrion, Reddit atheist that he is, responds with derision and scorn to this concept. He's the one that calls it magic, a childish word for him. Note that the elves in Lord of the Rings don't like the word magic, I think precisely for this reason. Blood spells, curses, shape-shifting, Tyrion believes not in these. We've already seen that in this book with regards to the zombified whites when Alistair Thorne came to warn everyone. Tyrion is the protagonist of a book about the Clash of Kings, about politics, damn it.
0: Right, and you see that too back in a Game of Thrones when he's talking with Elsie Mormon in the in the chambers and Elsie's like oh, I've seen visions in my dreams of dark magical things on the outside and Tyrion's like, dude, that's just like snarks and grumpkins and probably wildlings. So let's just focus on like the real picture here. Let's let's stay away from all this magical stuff. But I think it's really fascinating too. You talked about Var's referring to the magic as the old powers, because that is speaking to something that is an Inherent in the narrative of A Song of Ice and Fire, and that's namely that there was magic that existed at one point. Even Maester Luwin admits as much to Bran back at the end of A Game of Thrones. Like, ah, yes, there are certain things that existed. There were the children of the forest could like talk around each other. There, trees could apparently talk. There was like warging at some point down the road. But all these things are all vanishing into the into the ether. The problem is, is that magic is now fighting back. In in a clash of kings. It is not about the politics. It's not just about the entry of Tyrion to King's Landing to bring the balance back to the politics of the city. It's not about Tyrion restoring order in King's Landing after the small folk righteously rose up in anger and in riot. It's about magic now coming back and entering to the fore and saying, like, fuck your politics, man. Like, it's, we're getting back to the basics here. And the basics in this case are things that really, really disturb Varus. Because Varas, of all the characters, seems like the guy who is the least... I mean, he seems like magical and there's a lot of magical epithets thrown him. He's a wizard, according to Catelyn in some cases. He knows things that no man should know. But as we learn later on in the story, a lot of the reasons why he knows things, there's a, there's a practical reason why he knows these things as opposed to a magical one. But Varus though, comes across as a believer in magic. He believes in magic, or the old powers as he calls it, because he's had specific experience with it.
1: Tyrion has already put forth what seemed to him like reasonable explanations for Courtney's death, and so magic seems like a stretch. But Varus points out that Courtney's death did not occur in a vacuum. There was also the matter of Renly's death to consider, most fortuitous for Stannis. The common denominator here is unexpected fortune for the last Baratheon, who keeps getting his way through these mysterious accidents. However, Varus clearly recognizes that Tyrion is not merely denying the use of magic in this specific instance, he is denying magic's existence. Full stop. And so Varus feels the need to make Tyrion understand that this is the age of wonder and terror. Mm-hmm. That the fiery ladder is real. Varus has seen it at work. He volunteers to tell the story of how he was castrated, which he had refused to tell Tyrion before. While well, the stakes have changed, it's become newly relevant. Varus takes us back farther than we might have expected, all the way back to his boyhood as an orphan apprenticed to a traveling folly. Varus might have lacked parents... But he seemed to love this life fondly describing the fat little cog on which they sailed from port to port it all ended one day in Mir, when a certain man attended their performance and made an offer for young Varus, too good to refuse varus said this story was about the old powers about his relationship to magic but the first power of which he of which he is a victim in this story isn't magic it's money he was sold like an object by the only parental figure he had and his surrogate family just kept moving without him once he was gone, like he was nothing. It's the life Tyrion might have led, had he not been born a Lannister, a dwarf in a traveling troop, like Penny and Grote, potentially suffering a grim fate like Grote does. This would have been a hideous, life-changing moment for Varus, even if he hadn't been mutilated, even if he had somehow managed to escape first, he had still been abandoned. There is no safe refuge. There is no sheltering power. There is no family. The stage upon which I strutted my little shadow on a wall as a kid, gave way to the real thing. And the real thing was the old powers, claiming my body. Secular and sorcerous exploitation work together toward their common goal of inhumanity. At first Varus feared that the man intended to use him sexually. But just like how Euron goes from molestation to sorcery, the man who purchased Varus had his eyes set higher. Yet the common thread there is Varus' body. The sorcerer did intend to use and abuse Varus' flesh, just not sexually. Instead, he cuts off Varus' penis and testicles and sets them on fire. It's among the more skin-crawling scenarios and a story hardly lacking for them. The details make it all the more vivid. Varus was given a drug that immobilized him but did not dull the pain. He had to sit still and take it. One can't imagine how that became the foundation for wearing a mask at all times in his political career. He had already stayed stone through pain worse than he could imagine. Varus had to watch part of his body burn, hearing the sorcerer chant, and then the flames turned blue like ice, and then a voice spoke back. That's all we get because it's all Varus got. We don't know any more about it than he does. Was the voice real? Was it R'hllor? Who knows? He brushed up against something real, the power of nature driving the nature of power, but then it brushed past him and was gone forever. All he knows for certain is what it took away from him. The price paid by innocence, not only in the Game of Thrones, as he said to Ned, but in climbing the fiery ladder. He was sacrificed for the power of another. When it was over, he asked the sorcerer what he should do now. And the sorcerer says that he supposed Varus should die. He hadn't given thought to it. Such was his worldview. Men are meat. You served your purpose. Now rot as meat does. (laughs) Despite him, Varus resolved to live. Every breath he took after that was in defiance of how the world works, the interlocking structures of abuse. Varus begged. Varus stole. Varus sold what body parts remained to him. And Varus lived. As he grew, he came to realize the power of intelligence, and he founded his own vast political power on that revelation. Yet in the night, in his dreams, when he is all alone at the center of his spider web, all that power does not matter. It doesn't protect him. He's a child again, staring helplessly at the fire as it consumes his flesh, and spits out in return a voice speaking a language he does not understand. And it is the voice that haunts him. Varus, you get the sense, has long since let go of the memory of his penis. That doesn't even seem to really mean anything to him anymore. And unlike the show, this is not about revenge on the sorcerer. But what haunts him is that he doesn't know how it was done, and he knows all the tricks. Mm. Knowing all the tricks is what sustained him. It's what allowed him to rebuild his life anew, the political world of spycraft. Magic represents the limit of Varus' knowledge, the limit that robbed him, reduced him, He is haunted by the unknowability of what is beyond him. Varys has declared war on the silence and now when he looks to the horizon he finds a Stannis Baratheon waving the banner of gods and fire. Varys despises magicians and if Stannis is one Varys will see him dead. Hmm. Tyrion for once just shuts up for a minute and takes it all in. George doesn't give us his thoughts allowing us to tease out what he thinks from what he says. Tyrion is... Conflicted on how to feel about this, just like Shay was kind of conflicted upon hearing about Tyrion's backstory. On the one hand, as Tyrion says, it is a harrowing tale. That's why he just needs time to absorb it like <laughs> the audience does. So much evil is expressed in so little time. On the other, Tyrion does not believe that this story actually happened the way Varus says it did. The castration is undeniable, the voice in the fire, not so much. As with Alistair Thorne describing what the powers of ice are up to, Tyrion is shaken by the revelation of magic, but is ultimately unconvinced by it. As he says, he believes in money, violence, and man's ability to navigate both of those tempting traps with his wits. That is the world of secular power, and that is the world of Tyrion Lannister. And, he concedes, he believes there once were dragons. He's seen their skulls, after all, physical proof, material reality, he can't deny it. But Tyrion, like Maester Luwin, believes that they live in a world in which magic died, rather than one in which it was slowly dying and might be trying for one last hurrah, as is the case. (laughs) Still, Tyrion is sorry for Varys, not only for what he suffered then, but for how he has suffered since by repeating this false story as Tyrion thinks of it to himself. Varus has cracked himself open to Tyrion, as Tyrion did to Shay. Varus admits that he can't prove any of this. Time and distance have set their snares in him like anyone else, and he was just a mere mortal confused in pain. That's how we see gods and their powers, as through a mirror darkly, unsure of what we have truly witnessed, knowing only our own suffering. All they can do is move on, back to the world they know and can lay hands on. Tyrion tries to paper over this messy gap in the conversation by suggesting that Stannis sent a Faceless Man after Corney Penrose. <laughs> but the very existence of the Faceless Man speaks to the magical world and how right. it is inextricable from political power. We see that with Jock at Ed Harrenhal. Moreover, Tyrion brings up the Faceless Man in the context of having wanted to use Lannister wealth to send an assassin after his sister. Back we go to how Team Lannister is crumbling in on itself. Tyrion ultimately has no secure family to protect him any more than Varys did. When he was a young man in Mirror. they're both exposed to power, exposed to the sorcerous powers that Stannis is bringing on the march. And one by one, Varys nails shut the exits, the last possibilities for Team Lannister to save itself. Can we convince the Dornish to actively assist us? Nope. That alliance is skin deep. Duran will not commit forces to save Tywin Lannister's family. Well, what about Tywin himself? When last we saw him, he was marching west from Harrenhal in response to Rob's raids. Varus says he is not one across the Red Fork yet, and may end up trapped by Reach forces north of the Mander. On reread, we know that George is setting the stage for those Reach forces to join Tywin. But on first read, the walls really seem to be closing in at this point. Littlefinger will be crucial to making that alliance happen, but Varus lacks information on what happened to him. He might have died at Bitterbridge. After all, when Randall Tarley returned to the castle after Renly's death, he massacred thousands of soldiers who served the lords who went over to Stannis, chief among them the Florence. It's easy to skip over this as George quickly moves on and it doesn't come up again, but this is the payoff for what we were saying with Lady Gwynne back in Catalan 2 about the threat lurking under the playtime surface of Renly's army. Bitterbridge has, yet again, been soaked in blood. The growing divisions of the Civil War are claiming more and more lives in the streets of King's Landing and in the camps outside Bitterbridge. All signs point to the downfall of House Lannister at Stannis's unmerciful hands. And in the face of annihilation, what can Tyrion do but laugh? <laughs> Varys is thrown off his game, as he was by Shea recognizing him earlier. Same dynamic here. Tyrion has seen through all shadows to the truth. Stannis is coming with fire and blood, and whatever other powers he has. The point is that Tyrion will stand alone in his way. Tyrion is terrified, but as so many do, he finds a wild exhilaration in suicidal despair, some last measure of courage. All the characters from the stories and songs, all the shining tall, handsome men next to whom Tyrion has always felt lesser, none of them are here. Jaime's not here. Robert's not here, Renly's not here, Rhaegar's not here. The people's beloved Loras is not here. (laughs) Only me, the one they all hate. The irony is spectacular and will feed heavily into Tyrion's arc going forward. He feels his fall from power and the storm of swords all the keener because he's being rejected by the people he saved in spite of their hatred of him. Or that's how he thinks about it, anyway. In truth, Tyrion is once more allowing his self-loathing, the image of the monkey demon he has internalized, to blind him to the realities of power all around him. I'm all that stands between the people and chaos, says the man whose regime just (laughs) provoked a city-wide riot. Chaos is already upon them. That is not to hand-wave away the inevitable consequences of Stannis attacking the city. There is no doubt the people would suffer as part of that. But Tyrion is also feeding the fire quite literally in terms of the wildfire how ironic is it that after all this 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 worry and spookiness about stannis and his magical powers how ironic is it that stannis will send melisandre away before Mm -hmm. the battle making no use of sorcery while Tyrion is the one who relies on the fiery ladder there really is no good side here as both stannis and Tyrion began committed to justice only to allow power to gradually corrupt their ideals Both make gestures at law and order, at restoring peace for the people, but are ultimately motivated by their own personal fears and desires. They both believe they cannot be loved, and set out to secure their power in defiance of that belief. In truth, both of them lose the Battle of Blackwater. Stannis ends up isolated in the shell of his former self on Dragonstone. Tyrion ends up almost dying as a result of his wounds and then getting no credit for any of it anyway. (laughs) The old powers, as a phrase, refers not just to ancient powers in the world, you can think about it as referring to forces that grip individuals rooted in their own history, their own past. What are the old forces in your life? For Varus, the old power is that voice in the flames. For Tyrion, the old power is humiliation, resentment, alienation, and pride, all inherited from dear old dad. It is to these powers, as much as wildfire, that Tyrion sacrifices his beliefs, his men, and ultimately himself. As we approach the climax of a clash of kings. And you can feel it all building at the end of this chapter, ready to blow.
0: So I was thinking about this in terms of like the old powers and what they represent for Varys and what they represent for Tyrion. And what they do in the narrative is they speak to backstory. They speak to... This idea. And and Tyrion rejects Vars' particular backstory as not believable, as just a source of identity that Vars can craft around himself, the same way that, that Tyrion has crafted this humiliation, resentment, alienation, and pride that he got from his father as part of his backstory and part of his identity. And I think it speaks to what this chapter ultimately does and how it functions. Because in a Bad fantasy, bad version of fiction. This chapter probably would have been catching up with what happened after the Riding King's Landing. Filler to advance the plot towards the more exciting things like the Battle of the Blackwater. Versus what this chapter actually is. This is really good storytelling. Storytelling in terms of the thematics behind Tyrion and what is motivating him. The thematics behind Varys and what's actually motivating him. At least one piece of it, as we'll talk about here in a moment. But also, too, this speaks to... What's going on with the story and what's going on with the characters? It's not just about motivations and backstories. It's also about how the plot events we've encountered so far in A Clash of Kings are playing into each other as we advance toward the Blackwater. We really could have gone from the right in King's Landing to Stannis' forces arriving south of the Blackwater. But instead, we get this we get several chapters which build up towards that moment and not build towards it plot wise, so that we get some mention some more minor aspects that build up towards that and towards the Blackwater itself, but build towards the character and thematic stakes that are important for these characters. The old powers that are going on for both Varys and Tyrion are all animating these two characters as we progress toward the Blackwater and toward the ultimate confrontation between Stannis and Tyrion and Tywin and the Tyrells and San and everyone else that we're about to encounter here in a large, George's largest battle so far in A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: As I said earlier, this chapter is a difficult job, and yeah, it's, it's very easy to imagine lesser versions of it and more kind of functional, workmanlike versions of it. And I, I'm, I'm very pleased, I think, with the version we got. George did a uh, mm-hmm. great job gussying it up. So why don't you take us into foreshadowing and groundwork, sir? What do we got?
0: Thank you, sir. So first little thing is that Bronn tells Tyrion that he likes the son of Lord Bronn, and of course this factors into Bronn being rewarded with a lordship, storm of swords, in order to be bought off from serving as Tyrion's champion in his coming duel, uh, rather his his champion at the, his coming trial by battle with uh, with Gregory Clegane. So. This is uh, this is this pays off in a big way, and of course, George has also said that Bron will be back in the Winds winner Winter as Lord Bron, and uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of hijinks that he'll get up to there in his current lordship.
1: Bron keeps climbing the ladder through you know through Tyrion and then through Tywin. Shay tries to do the same, but of course, you know Tyrion's relationship with Shay is is, is much more intimate and you know caught up in his dysfunction a lot more so than his relationship with Bron. So while he lets Bron go with a bittersweet farewell, he's not willing to let Shay go. Right. Uh, and speaking of uh, Tyrion's relationship to women, he does have this malicious tendency to slap women who get under his skin. This is not the only time. In one of his uh, released chapters from The Winds of Winter, the second one, Tyrion slaps Penny for reminding him of Shay. So just like Shay reminded him of Taisha, now Penny reminds him of Shay. It just keeps building up like that.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the arrows keep looping back in and up with cells for Tyrion and then he ends up having more and more terrible things that he does against women. Because again, there is that strain of Lancer specific Lancer misogyny. It's not specifically towards Lancers, but the way that it's manifested itself out feels very, very Lannister-like from Tywin and Kevon. To Tyrion, and to Jamie and also to Cersei with her internalized misogyny. Very true. Third little bit of foreshadowing. We have lots of foreshadowing, and you mentioned this, for the Reach to arrive on scene with the Blackwater with Reach houses sited north of the Mander. And this is likely the Reachmen moving in the direction of Tywin's host after Littlefinger struck the bargain with the Tyrells. And we can kind of figure at this point that the bargain has been struck because we also hear about Randall Tarley executing Florent men. So why they would execute Florent men as opposed to keeping them captive or keeping them alive to join with Stanislaw well, at that point. Likely they had now joined up with the Lancers and the bargain had been struck by Littlefinger. little
1: finger. I believe. Yeah. When, uh, when Rob and the blackfish come back from the West to talk to Edmure about how things sussed out, they say how things shook out. They say that he delayed Tywin just long enough for a word to reach him about what was happening in the West. So presumably, yeah, that these, these were the people who reached him were messengers uh, you know that we're flying the banners that Varys talks about seeing north of the manor and they're getting word to him hey Stannis is on the march and we're willing to team up with you because of what Littlefinger said so yeah I think that, that's probably right we're already seeing the, the, the deal at work
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then I think the, the foreshadowing that kind of looms most ominously mm-hmm. in the reader's mind when you come back this, this tunnel in the Tower of the Hand Tyrion is going to be using this tunnel to get back into the Tower of the Hand <laughs> to kill both Tywin and Shae at the end of A Storm of Swords
0: yeah and like the irony from this chapter is that Tyrion thinks that the red keep will keep shay safe from death but it's the tunnel system the very tunnel system of the red keep the red keep itself which will allow Tyrion to slip into Tywin's bedchamber to find shay laying in the bed and then of course strangle her so that is the horrific irony of that little bit of foreshadowing that we have here in this chapter
1: well said sir so, taking us now to our uh, theory and discussion portion of the episode, and this is already a subject of, of uh, discussion in the chat, I see, <laughs> we wanted to talk a little more about, about the truth behind Varus' backstory. What's what's he what's he really up to? What is he saying? How much can we believe him?
0: Varus' backstory is something that we have, a lot of theories have been thrown out about, but I think it's interesting in this chapter that we get essentially all that we know about Varus's early childhood. We will learn a little bit more about what he was up to in Pentos and Mir from Illyrio, and I believe Tyrion's first chapter, of Dance with Dragons. But this is the chunk of what we know so far, and perhaps the Wind's Winter will reveal more.
1: So, you uh, know, obviously Varys is a, a slippery character, hard to pin down, always feigning some kind of plans within plans, wheels within wheels. But I, I, I find it hard to think of it an incentive for him to lie at this moment. I'm not sure what he would get out of it. Like, Tyrion is already dedicated to fighting Stannis for his own reasons. And as a skeptic, he is unlikely to believe this story on the merits, as we see unfold. Moreover, George, uh, you know, goes out of his way to write that Varys's tone of voice is different. And Varys doesn't really try to convince Tyrion of the truth. He doesn't try to break Tyrion of his doubt when he's done telling the story. He's just done telling it. And this backstory, as I was saying, it fits the theme of the story so well, and of A Clash of Kings specifically. I, I just find it hard to believe that Varys is inventing it out of whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Rather, I think he is being selective in what truths he <laughs> reveals. Just as Tyrion doesn't lie to Shay about Taisha, but nor does he tell her everything that happened. Mm. Varys is conveniently leaving out Illyrio, Young Grift, and the entire Blackfire subplot that is actually motivating him to keep Stannis out of power, as you were touching on earlier. More personally, Varus might also be leaving out his own Blackfire slash bright Flame roots if you believe those theories, which could have been the sorcerer's motivation for seeking him out specifically to begin with for his magical powerful blood. As Varus himself admits, what he's not sure about is if the vo- voice in the fire was real or not. I think it probably was because, you know, I think it would be weird if the sorcerer went to all this trouble and it just wasn't. But <laughs> the ambiguity is deliberate on George's part because this sorcerer, uh, is, it was not part of the story and it's not part of Varus's life to inform us and increase our understanding. He's not a mentor figure like Melisandre or Jojen Reed. He saw Varus as raw material, part of a larger pattern, not a central POV in his own right worthy of catharsis. As such, there just are no answers to be had for Varus, and you get the sense he's just gradually, painfully had to accept that, and is telling this story now because it's like the only catharsis he's ever going to get. He's never going to solve any of this, just talking about it is all there is. I think George is is commenting on the hopeless longing for answers and how they only serve at, at best just to gain company, and I think that has implications for the reader, that, you know, we have our own hopeless longing for answers sometimes, but the best you can do is find company with it, as we try to do.
0: Yeah, and I think we also find identity and company in the form of stories, in terms of like narratives that we're are motivating us. As Vares says in this chapter, he was told by the sorcerer to just go and die after Varys, after he asked what he should be doing with his life, and despite him, he went on living. And I know. People like that in my end, in the real world who have been had terrible things happen to them and have gone on to live as a it, it's in, in contrast to what they were told or what they were expected to do after a terrible traumatic event. I think you, you hits on something that I think is really good, and that is that Vara's is very clearly telling part of the story, the part of the story that he wants to tell or is willing to reveal. Now, Young Griff, the Blackfire subplot. Yeah, I think when we go back after A Dance with Dragons, we could very clearly see that this is part of what Var was animating vars But a lot of stuff was still not quite in mind for George as he's closing a Clash of Kings that comes in line between Clash and Storm of Swords. That being said, I think there is some interesting aspects about vars and about the ceremony, which might potentially speak to his, let's call it kingly origins, so to speak. We do know that there is a king's blood aspect in, in magic, which can animate magic or that people believe in it. Melisandre being the one who voices that the most uh, throughout the story, especially when you get to a storm of swords and what she wants to do with uh, the blood of Edric Storm and how she could raise stone dragons that way. You could see this kind of belief and system in place where the certain properties of magic might animate magicians and sorcerers to utilize it for some sort of blood magic ritual, which would help them to do whatever. Ray stone dragons, the case of Melisandre, not really sure what the sorcerer was after with Vars. And we don't really get any clear answers. And I doubt that we will. That being said, I, I think it's, I, I think that this is something that George is going to de- leave deliberately vague and ambiguous about Vars's origins. I don't think we're going to get a clear cut answer. And I think it really fits a pattern that we see with the, the carries of the character of, uh, Lara's uh, club from, from fire and blood volume one, the character who is the obvious Vars archetype and Vars parallel, and we talked about this in one of our, our patron episodes about uh, Fire and Blood. I can't remember which which part it was specifically, but we talked about how in Fire and Blood, there's this whole like thing about this character Laris and what he was actually after, what he was up to, and who he was related to, and what all his identity was all about. And it's left completely ambiguous and unclear as to what Laris Clubfoot was actually after. And what ended up happening is that they made it a stronger story ultimately in the history and that it's allowed for a lot of fan theories to kind of crop up. I myself have written a version of Varys as a potential Bright, fo- bright Flame slash fire descendant, but you can read that. I'll link it in the show notes for our patrons if you want to take a look at that. But I think it's more important that the ambiguity is there because in ended up himself as a character that is infused with ambiguity and it makes him and the story much richer and stronger as a result.
1: I totally agree, especially with what you said at the end there. And yeah, the comparison to Larry's clubfoot, and I think, is strong. And as I, I might have said at the time, but there's the it feels like a, a clear shout out to Iago, the villain, and Othello at the end when he just goes moments says, "I'm not going to explain my plan or my motivations to any of you people in universe or out. You're just going to have to deal with that." Basically, it just gives this, this you know little speech to that effect. And the same might be true with Varys, that you know just as his own conspiracies are always kept just out of the reader's reach. What happened to him is always kept just out of his reach and he's he's mm-hmm. never going to have full clarity and full confirmation so he has had to find meaning elsewhere and that is a really... Devastating process, but it's also a realistic one because people in the real world, even though, you know, even if it's not involving sorcery, they lose parts of themselves physically and otherwise and have to just learn to let it go. And for all that Varus seems kind of above humanity a lot of the time, I think he's he's very human in that respect. And this, I think, is what Tyrion responds to when he says, yeah, I don't believe that, but I'm still really (laughs) sorry. And I think that's that's emotionally true. I like it a lot.
0: Emotionally true is the best type of truth in a a song of ice and fire in any type of fiction that you're reading and or writing. Mm hmm. And I think that is going to wrap us up for a Clash of Kings Tyrion 10. Thank you as always so much for listening and thank you to our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts.
1: You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ASOIAF. You can follow us on Twitter at ASOIAF or shoot us an email at natacastasoiaf@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com.
0: And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics,
1: we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Hall Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam K. Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjakot, Alchemist of Setson Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon, mariful Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth, the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn. Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands. Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil. And Lord Young of the Ghostwoods. Thank you so much to our High
0: Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you, folks, very, very much. So, join us next week as we return to Riveron, hell yeah, for the Battle of the Fords. Battle, episode, battle, Uh, 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 chapter, uh. battle, episode. In A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 6.
1: Yet another great Catalan chapter, as I keep saying. She's my favorite POV in A Clash of Kings, and that is just a, a beautifully written chapter. So much great imagery and little lines of dialogue and inner monologue. It's, it's going to be a another chapter I think might end up longer than we, we might
0: expect. Mm, yeah, this one was long and this one is uh, uh, just as long, if not they're longer. They're just going to stay long, right. folks. Absolutely, yeah. Abs- <laughs> yeah, it's great. So thank you so much for listening. thank you so much again to our pages for supporting us. and we'll see you guys, we we'll all literally next time.